Next on the Well of Sound, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. never thought we'd be here. Never <laughs> at the beginning of, of the Well of Sound did I think Meatloaf and Jim Steinman would be on the schedule. But here we are. I feel like I had an inclination that, that this might work. And I, I, I think you're right. And I went into it kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. I, I, I suggested this at the very beginning of our initial run, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I... Uh, even after I said yes, as we started, I was like, I don't, I don't know if I can do this mm. to myself, you know? Um, and I think what's going to happen here is I'm going to um, contradict myself a lot <laughs> about my opinions about this stuff. Okay. You know, because it, at times I go, please make it stop. And at other times... I, you know, I don't know if I've been beaten into submission or if I actually love it, but I also feel like that's so in line with what I actually like, you know, I, um, I, I contradict myself with taste all the time and Mm. I, and I love low and I love high and I love when they smash together like this. So theoretically I should love this and I think I do. But I don't know, and I feel like we're going to sort it out, you know, by talking it out. What I do know is what you've said all along, which is this this is bound to be fun to talk about. It, there's no question about it. No question there's about it. There's a lot it. of humor. It touches on so many little tendrils of... Everything. Of American Everything we've talked about. As well as internationally. It's, it, right. I was, as the, it was one of these things, as, as the more I read... The more double takes I did, it's like, wait, what? No way did this part happen. No way did Jim Steinman work on a musical version of Phantom of the Paradise, which was already a musical that Paul Williams had worked on in the eighties. I, I mean, it's like when we I, get there, I, I I would love to know if you know more because I I only saw the 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 factoid that that is a thing, but I don't know more than that. So I'm, I mean, these I'm are this is a, a slight yin yang story. Uh, because um character wise character well at least yeah character wise i'd say they're yeah. they're, they're foils yeah. foils for each other right um but before before we jump yeah, into the story that. i mean did you have any experience with i mean there was there's different two different times where he's been omnipresent meatloaf at least in america sure and i and, I, and the the second time in the <laughs> 90s um i was like no thank you um the first time uh i mean i was born when the album came out when the bat out of hell came out so um i didn't hear it until i think i was probably in eighth or ninth 
grade, I heard Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I think it was on the, you know, the the FM station uh, that always played classic rock. And eventually one day I heard that and I was, my ears perked up and I thought, what is this? And I couldn't get enough of it to the point that for some reason in whatever year that was, would have been like 1989 or something, uh, there, there was a cassette single of Paradise by the Dashboard Light. As if it were re-released or something. Maybe it was, you know, in preparation of Battle of the Hell too. But anyway, I listened to the, I listened to it the a stuff lot. Stuff has been reissued a lot. I yeah. think it's safe to say one of the themes that we'll come back to is the, re- the recycling of um, <laughs> material, <laughs> ideas, motifs. So what about for you? When, when, when did this, like, A, come onto your radar, and then B, when were you like, I- I'm, I'm in? Uh. Well, initially, the first I ever heard of Meatloaf is I, and I I was trying to think about it coming out here, but um, it wasn't I would do anything for love. It would it which was you know a huge I think it's the largest selling single of the year of like 1993 or whenever it came out. Yeah. But um, I no, think, <laughs> I think that's right. It was like the the only thing that beat it at the time was the Macarena or something. <laughs> it was it was a year so in which a, a pretty lot big of sensation. great music was was released and it was at the height of grunge. No diggity. And uh you had <laughs> this 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 you know eleven minute song that came right. out. The um no for me uh I got a hold of the Rocky Horror soundtrack, uh the movie soundtrack when i was pretty young i mean i was remember i wasn't Uh really allowed to watch the movie okay but my dad let me listen to the soundtrack Uh and i the his song on there the eddie song yeah um he had this great rock and roll voice and i loved that song right and the whole that whole the whole musical was uh, made an impression shall we say um i didn't see i've only seen it once actually i've i've never seen it well, well, he's great in it, and um, that led me to on to Bat Out of Hell much later. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So the Steinman fixation wasn't, and Meatloaf. I went a lot deeper into Meatloaf than I've ever gone before, but I I followed a lot of the Jim Steinman stuff. I, I remember discovering Bad for Good. Uh huh. Probably, maybe in my mid twenties. And I would say that that was the right would have been the right time for me because I was into you know all the stuff that a lot of stuff we talked about Paul Williams and and these sort of epic singer songwriters um and so peripherally I was like I want to get more into Jim Steinman when I get the chance but the chance never provided itself for Mm -hmm. me because back then you had to buy the record you know type of thing or find the record and bad for good well, it, it was such a flop. It was it was a fixture in certain used bins, but it was also like, what the hell is this? You know? Yeah. How could it's got this? <laughs> what a cover! What a cover! But also, the name Jim Steinman didn't like scream sex appeal, I guess, or at right. the time. And it, it, it was you didn't know if you didn't know that he was the guy behind Bad Out of Hell. There'd you, be, you'd right. be hard. It'd be a hard sell. Right. But still, pretty great cover. Yeah. I think uh, all of Gordon these covers are great covers. I mean, that's. You know, high marks. Yeah, and I I also I uh, do remember when two and two came together, and, and I found out that the guy who wrote Total Eclipse of the Heart was the same guy who wrote the Meatloaf songs. Right. That was that was like that was a good thing for me when I found out he'd also written It's All Coming Back to Me Now. I had such a chip on my shoulder about Celine Dion that I couldn't quite compute yeah. that. But 
Anyway, yeah. Should those, we tell the story? Yeah, we've done we've done a lot of uh, sort of enough teasers, I think, to to like get, have people go like, what? What? I know that song. That's not, that's. I didn't think that would be part of this story, but it is. So yes. yeah, let's dig into it. Um, who should we start with? Meat or Stein? Steinman. I think we start with Meat. For sure. Yeah. From I mean, birth, this this guy had uh, a tough time. Whatever stupid ass dreams you got in that big old head of yours, you better get rid of them quick. Play center field, like like Mickey Mantle. <laughs> big old fat boy like you? Don't be an idiot, son. We're nothing, me. Okay. The sooner you get that, the better off you'll be. Don't call me that, okay? What, mate? I call you me? That's what you are, boy. Big old tub of meat. Try to be something you're not. He did not have an easy time. He talks about his dad trying to kill him with a butcher knife, I think. Yeah, so he's like 19, uh, and his mom died of cancer. uh, And I think maybe he had a girl or some girls in the house. And his dad, who was, I think, a, uh, a drunk and probably suffered from PTSD because he was in World War II uh, and and generally sort of a, uh, a shady is, character. Dallas. He said that he knew Jack Ruby or something like that. Like he, yeah, he has yeah. a bit of a, a, a run-in on the, on the day that JFK is, is shot. Yeah. Right. There's Meat some Loaf story is, is, about that. There, I never, I mean, it's a lot of this is shrouded in legend and, and yeah. tall tales, but Meatloaf is born Marvin a day. Like it's not. Yeah. Um, ML. His initials are ML, and his dad called him Meat. And then eventually, when the kids on the playground found out his initials were ML, they called him Meat Loaf. And so, there was, a, I guess, an ad at the Times like Fat Marvin wears big <laughs> jeans or something like that. Poor, poor Fat Marvin can't <laughs> can't wear Levi's. Poor Fat Marvin Fit into can't his wear Levi's. So like it was a triple whammy, I think, yeah. because he was also because he's giant. I think he was like. Uh, almost 300 pounds at age 11 i mean yeah. it, was, it was he's a big kid a very big kid um and you you it, it's hard to imagine what the kid went through he just being an outsider and i don't think he really realized he could sing that well until he sort of he leaves town after his mother dies and his dad tries to kill him yeah and his dad um, tries to kill him or he's and he has money from i guess uh inherited from his mom uh, enough to sort of like get him on the road and i think he had run away a couple times before um so yeah by way of dallas he ends up in la right yeah and basically cons his way into a role in one of the productions of hair what part did you have in hair oh i did a lot of <laughs> i did a lot of different parts uh-huh. oh you know, I didn't do uh, one of the leads, but uh, I did. Uh, did you get? I it? was I was always off stage changing clothes. So. And before that, he uh, is kicking around in a band that had a couple names. First, Popcorn Blizzard, <laughs> and then uh, Floating Circus is what they ended up sticking with. But I, I mean, Popcorn Blizzard. It's good. pretty pretty even handed as far as whether you're going to be Popcorn Blizzard or Floating Circus. Um, I actually. Uh, a song attributed to Popcorn Blizzard, I was about to call it Popcorn Circus, um, is on YouTube. And, you know, it's just standard 60s psychedelic fare. It's going on that way. This once upon a time. 
they opened for them. Um, and then eventually, uh, at times, The Who, The Stooges, MC5, The Dead. And? I'm assuming Alice Cooper. Well, I think Bob Seger. I think they, they play oh, with when Bob they go Seger to, quite a to bit. Detroit. Now, where does hair fall in? Is that pre-Detroit or is that? Mm, I think that's right. I think that's pre-Detroit. Probably getting ahead of ourselves. But he, the the hair thing, um, a lot of hair was 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 really the first yeah, opera like rock opera like this, from what I understand. This is sixty eight, sixty nine. It was pre Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. And um, Tommy sort of is, is knocking around, but this is a different. It, it has legs, you know. A lot of mm-hmm. people find their start in hair, including Sean Stoney Murphy. Sean Stoney Murphy, who he sort of hooks up with as his singing partner. Who, Sean is a woman. Sean is a woman. Yep. S H A U N. And the way that I knew who Sean Murphy was was the only way was was preparing for our Little Feet episode because she ends up being the lead singer for Little Feet for like, you know, long after Lowell George dies, but from like 1995 to or to like 2015 or something like that. Oh, I so I I had forgotten about that. I thought you were going to say because of prep for the Seeger episode because I feel like she does backing vocals on a couple of his. Uh, yeah, she does. Early she does songs. too. So she's she's in the mix. She's in the mix. She's on, got on a, a couple episodes voice. we talked about. Yeah. So they end up she but she, they she's in hair with him. Yep. And I know that like they kind of decide they're going to be this duo, and you know he's Stony and Meatloaf. Stony and Meatloaf. I mean, I, I really like... Um, Meatloaf, one word, not yet two words, which he becomes, it's important to remember, he is Meatloaf. <laughs> so there's, there's a... There's a uh, they put out a record in 1971 yeah. on, on what label? Motown. Motown. And they... So I mean, they must be in Detroit by that point. I think they've made it to Detroit, and uh, they, they same time as Alice Cooper too. I'm assuming Alice Cooper comes into this story a number, number of, of times, times. Yeah, and yeah. but they 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 lure them with a Barry Gordy. I think as Holland does or Holland try to sign them as well. They've just sort of left. Oh, left Motown. Okay. They uh, but they go with Barry Gordy, and uh-huh. Barry says, "Oh, we're going to give you the single that the Jackson Five wanted to record, uh-huh. uh, which is what you see is what you get. Which if you hear it, it sounds a little like the Jackson Five. Uh, here you go. Great. Ain't no Joyful, it's fun. That's a, I mean, his that's voice, a good sounding song. Yeah, I realized the other day I was listening to it because there's a the, the yeah, first song like? on there is called "I'd Love to Be as Heavy as Jesus," which is you know, the, I guess the double entendre of heavy at that stage right, in American right. life. And there's, um, to me, his voice sounds like Swamp Dog on that, like that high oh, pitched yeah. or that that sort of back of the throat. Back of the throat, right. Uh, that thing. Is, I mean, he's, yeah. a lot of people don't, um, because they sign a Motown, they don't, they put out singles before they're, they think that they're black. And like, they do. That's they what do. I was actually they about to ask. They hide the fact yeah, that they're yeah, yeah. white because they want them to chart on R&B radio. Right, right. So they're dealing with that. I mean, Lord knows uh, Marvin Gaye is probably bumming around. Yeah, totally. Well, it sounds like, so... 
uh, an interview I saw with him post uh, Bat Out of Hell, but still in the 70s, he, I mean, he was, he was drunk in the interview, <laughs> but um, he did. Uh, w- clearly thought poorly of those those years and doesn't like or didn't like those those records at least at the time and and uh and i think it it did not end well there was something about edwin Starr replacing his vocals on on a track that motown that barry gordy did and he was pissed about that i always sing with women from the time i started 1967 whenever it's sort of like beauty and the beast trip you know and so uh i'm the beauty and they're the beast and so, Stony yeah, yeah, Stoney Me Love, she was the beast, I was the beauty, always been that way, you know? What do you think about that record? What, Stoney Me Love? Yeah. You can burn it. If you own a copy, burn the damn thing. I don't want to see it, you know? People come up with it. They're getting ready to re-release it. I can't believe it. I hate that record. I had nothing to do with the record other than it said Meatloaf, and I did a few vocals. It's, so, yeah. He's not treated well. He learns the, the, the heart. I mean, it takes... This is 1971. It takes him a while. Like, Battle to Hell doesn't come out until 1977. He's bumming around for a long time. Yeah. And on the stage, he keeps getting... When he needs a job, he gets a job in like a touring production of Hair. And so here's the thing is like, you you have to think that uh, that stuff doesn't happen by accident. Clearly, he was um, dripping with some kind of charisma and talent. And um, it was working for him early on and people could see it. Um Steinman talks about when they, uh, I'm jumping ahead uh, just a click, uh, when they meet that he, you know, presents as a sweet sort of corn-fed big guy. Yeah. Big oaf. And what clearly is revealed across their relationship is there's a, there's a darker side to this guy. But at least at, at the beginning, you know, when you first meet the guy, he's sweet and gentle and funny and talented. And like, you know, that's not a bad combo. <laughs> no. And he and Steinman. So Steinman um, is, go, comes from Long Island. Yeah. And he uh, grows up listening to... Like Wagner, he, and Wagner and Little, Little Richard. Richard. I mean, that's what, what he's trying to cross those two things. But like, when we say it's like something sounds Wagnerian, like he absolutely loves Richard Wagner. Like he's right. He that's his favorite right. music. Direct on to the Earth. source. Yeah. He's a, uh, and uh, you know the Germanic stuff doesn't stop there. Uh, uh, he went to Amherst and was and is immersed with like Brechtian uh, stagecraft. And uh, and and I feel like that's very fitting to what we'll see that that uh, perception of of theater. And then um, his independent study is where he developed something called the Dream Engine, which is his version to try to do, from what I understand, yeah. a sort of a raunchier version of hair, where people are naked almost the whole time, rather than just a little bit. And, um, but the, but the, clearly the, the, he, he's going as far as he possibly can go. He just wants to push the limit on everything. He's a, he's a very funny guy. Jim Steinman is not like a, he is a nonstop talker, <laughs> like take a breath. And then, you know, five minutes later he exhales. It was the perfect style because it was comic book, but also thrilling and heroic, um, violent, sexual, erotic, but it had a great wink to it. And that's what I thought the music had. And it was totally over the top. I mean, that was the thing I was always accused of the most. People would say, don't you think your music's a little over the top? And I always had the same answer, that 
it seems to me required to go over the top if you're doing rock and roll. And I always said, if you don't go over the top, you're not going to see what's on the other side. So what's the point? I thought, basically, you should start over the top and then find some new frontier. You know, it just goes and goes and goes. He tells the story. And he's pretty charmed with all, all, all of it. You know, I mean, he's definitely somebody who he has... He grows up really kind of rich. That's oh, is that what, right? They say, yeah, on, he's a, a Jewish kid on Long Island, but his, his father is, owns like a factory or something. It's like a... he's, he's Right, and he goes to a, a, a good private school and is immersed in the, the, the drama department. And, you know, that's a... He kicks off pretty well. And then his next step is, is right to like premium New York theater i mean he ends up with uh joseph papp and um uh the shakespeare festival and um the public theater uh you know the shakespeare that's, festival where that's like an, i think meryl Stre- meryl streep no is, is at, like i think that he ends up getting he meets meatloaf around this time and meatloaf works on shakespeare too in the park with like meryl streep and like yeah. a young meryl streep and as well as um Oh, there's a couple other famous. Uh... Yeah, there's um, well, there's some names I'll I'll drop when when we get to it. But um, I just wanted to do the synopsis of the Dream Engine. Do you talk to us? Because uh, so he's also there's two themes that are start to kick off with this this play that he writes and music that he writes called the, from the Dream Engine, um, which is he likes Peter Pan. Loves Peter Pan. You think of a wonderful thought. Any happy little thoughts? Uh-huh. Like toys at Christmas? Sleigh bells? Snow? Yep. Watch me now. Here I go. It's easier than pie. He can fly! He can fly! He flew! And he's sort of obsessed with, you know, teenage fantasy. Um, so he, here's the plot of the Dream Engine. Set in a satirical dystopian 1969 is the story of a young boy uh, named Ball who, along with his rebel fellows, doesn't accept the restraints and limits of their society. Ball is the leader of a self-assembled group of wild boys called the Tribe, whose mortal enemies are Max and Emily, the parents of... The girl, a young woman with whom Ball has fallen in love. So, you know, <laughs> this is yeah. pretty basic stuff, but but Peter Pan is 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 knitted he, into you this. You know, Jim Steinman, it turns out, spends his entire life trying to tell versions of the Peter Pan story. I'd like to do something. I mean, I've written one. I've written this Peter Pan thing. That's my dream project, which I hope to do, which is a rock and roll Peter Pan. Because ultimately, I used to, I grew up with Peter Pan again it's one of my favorite stories and I still think it's one of the great rock and roll stories in, in interviews he always talks about like to being to be young is the greatest thing ever and who you know it's the freedom and um, all of it's his favorite book he wants to dramatize it in every single he, he thinks Bad of the Hell is, is a version of Peter Pan he and keeps, he maintains this sort of like puckish joy mm-hmm. with with all these these elements that he plays with over and over again I mean he's endlessly obsessed yeah yeah he's not a guy who um who like it's just constantly he's, he's a lot always got a lot of products going on and there's like a uh manic aspect of that but what's interesting about Steinman is he continues to try to perfect things he's been working on for his whole life right like it's the same if you listen to the the dream engine the actual musical a Apparently there are elements of it that show up on Bonnie Tyler's records in the eighties. You know? Turn around, bright eyes is is a and uh, a lyric that is in it. Yeah. Right. 
and it's referring to, I guess, nuclear war or something. <laughs> something. He he does this. I think eventually um, he gets into. Uh, he writes a, a a musical called More Than You Deserve, right? And that gets actually put on in New York. Yeah, at the public right? theater. At the public with theater. Joseph Papp. And one of the actors in the show is Marvin Lee Day. So some other people that were in that show. Yeah. Fred Gwynn. Yeah. Uh, Herman Munster. Uh, <laughs> Ron Silver. Ron and, Silver, yes. And you ready for this? Terry Kaiser. Do you know who Terry Kaiser is? No, no. Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. He's the kidding? dead guy. <laughs> what kind of a host invites you to his house for the weekend and dies on you? I don't know. Lomax told whoever he's talking to not to kill us if he's around, right? Yeah, yeah, but Lomax is dead. He's not around anybody yeah. anymore. <laughs> I know that. You know that. Nobody else knows that. Huh? Oh! Steinman is constantly writing musicals that never come to anything, but More Than You Deserve does get staged. So does The Dream Engine. And More Than You Deserve is a song that ends up showing up on a Meatloaf album later, right? In the 80s. Right, okay. So there's a lot... Ha- but they, they hook up together and they realize that they they can make music. They, they sound pretty great. like Or that, that, that Meat decides he wants to do an album of Jimmy's songs. I forced him into it. Uh-huh. He wanted to be an artist. He wanted to sing. He wanted to sing his own songs, Uh and I, uh, I had a lot of dinners with him, and and he loved spaghetti, so I gave him a lot of spaghetti and invited him over for a lot of stuff, and and eventually I coaxed him into uh, working with me, Uh and uh, he, uh, then we had a lot of arguments on if I could do his songs very good, and I told him I'd do them better than anybody. Jimmy decides he wants me to sing his songs, right, and pursue sees the 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 potential of meat as his muse and, and voice yeah. right away. And I think pursues him pretty hard. Can I play one song um, that I, 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 you may have heard and you may have not heard. Certainly you know the song, but do you know who's singing it? So that's right before he uh, he and Meatloaf meet and they do uh, more than you deserve. Um, but he already so Bette Midler is not quite the Bette Midler that we know at that point. But I think he's he's testing out talent with with somebody like that. Um, 
so that's an early version of of Heaven Can Wait, which ends up on Bad Out of Hell. Um, and then his first song that ends up on an album is called Happy Ending in 1973 on an album that's amazing that I've, I've become obsessed with by uh, Yvonne Elliman, who is uh, plays Mary Magdalene in Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, yeah, okay. That's yeah. the song Happy Ending, right? Yeah. like 1973 that we're yes. up to and that's when Meat Love gets cast as Eddie in the Rocky Horror Picture Show yeah. or the Rocky the Horror sh- the Rocky play. Horror Show yeah the 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 musical yeah which um he at the beginning he plays Eddie and Dr. Everett Scott so there's a early version of the song um uh Eddie's Teddy I think which is uh, <laughs> which uh has which I had known from the film soundtrack, but he wasn't singing on it. But this is this is the song. From the day he was gone, was rock and roll porn, and a shooting up He was a low down, cheap little punk, It's so good. His I, voice sounds fantastic there. His voice is just off the charts in those early years. He struggles with his voice because it's it's quite it's an instrument. It's not easy for it's, him. It's, it's no, it's not easy. Um, but they, uh, he gets cast as as on the. Um, in the L.A. cast, and so he yeah. gets on the soundtrack album, and then um, then they film. Uh, I think they film it in London, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, uh, it comes and, out in seventy five, so they must have done it in seventy four. Right? Yeah, and there's you know Susan Sarandon and um, uh, you know, Richard O'Brien, and of course Tim Curry. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it becomes the great uh, cult film basically. Because yeah. when I was living in New York uh, in the about 15 years ago, still playing at midnight, you know, every, every couple weeks. Did you see the, uh, the sketch that I'm assuming is either like late seventies or early eighties on SNL with Tim Curry and meatloaf where they like to, the Rocky, like, like Rocky horror sh- like, shop shop. Yeah. Yeah. Where they sell all the, all the things that you'll need to go to a screening. And it's not very funny, but it's, it's not, like, but they're like on fire. Yeah. The they're two having of them. Fun they're having a blast. All the Rocky horror props you need under one roof. You say, you say that's right. You've already got a water pistol. Well, let me tell you. You don't have the official Rocky Horror Show water pistol. Absolutely. Endorsed by Tim Coyote, 24.99. It has range and accuracy. But listen here, I'm not worried. You know why? Because, because I've got the official, that's right, the official Rocky Horror Show newspaper. You might expect to tweet, pay 20 bucks for this, but I'm going to tell you what. No, stop squirting me, sucker. Anyway, listen, we're going we're gonna to rip the prices in half right here in front of you. We're going to rip the prices in half, and you can get this paper for only 10 bucks. 
Go ahead, squirt me. But he gets some notoriety through this. He records um he records a song like when he's in London, a song called Clap Your Hands, um, which I think Richie Blackmore plays on. Whoa, and, what? Um, it's a great song. I'm gonna I'm gonna get it on here. But um they uh it's just sort of an assemblage of, of talent that Yeah, he starts to, he does some some um, some session work at that this point, you know? Clap your hands and stomp your feet, I think it's called. Oh yeah. Um, but it's not it's not a song you know. Great song. Like, I can hear the Blackmore in there. That's for sure. <laughs> he's going. He's going nuts. They um, and at this time, like he and Steinman, when they're back in New York, they're Steinman's written "Bad Out of Hell" and they're like workshopping it. "Bad Out of Hell," "Heaven Can Wait," um, two out of three. The formation bad. of the pack, uh, which was retitled "All Wrapped Up." Mm, I like that song. Every song I think of as a separate vision or a separate dream or even an adventure. It's like. When you start playing the record, it's setting off on a voyage, on a series of adventures through this kingdom, this world. And it just so happens that almost all the people in the world are teenagers. That's just because I think that's the best kind of world. <laughs> uh, if you have a world only of teenagers, at least musically, for the course of one record, you're bound to get a lot of excitement, a lot of romance, a lot of violence, a lot of chills and fever, a lot of sex. And uh, those are all very good things, a lot of motorcycles. Right. I mean, it beats Perry Como, doesn't it? But before, like, they're getting they're getting nowhere with the record. Like the the the, the I. So they're pitching it sort of at every opportunity they can get, right? But and they, developing. They refuse to record demos of it. They only they insist they on going live. in and doing it live. Um, the, I mean, they are really shooting for the moon. Clearly, you know, they're just like this is great, and if you don't get it. We'll just keep moving on because we th- we believe. And you know, they're very like they keep talking about how everyone Clive Davis passes on them. Like yeah. there's a lot of and sense also, of like they don't look right. They're, there's this huge <laughs> Texan guy and this is sort of right. very strange. Like uh, Jim Steinman's got this long like almost white hair at that point already, and he's wearing skinny dude with a leather jacket and probably leather gloves. <laughs> that becomes part of his uniform. Um, and also, I think Meatloaf is doing well enough that he's constantly getting offers to basically like ditch Steinman. Yeah. Like, if you just let go of this dweeb, you know, um, we can do something with you. And and he's like, no, I'm, I'm example, sticking with this guy. Where does he get? What does he get offered to do in 1976? Um, the Nooch. <laughs> oh, the Nooch. But wait, before that <laughs> is uh uh. S and is uh, oh, National Lampoon. They go on this tour with National Lampoon, like but this is pre SNL. <laughs> I mean, come on! At this point, I think of all the names we've already mentioned, and they haven't even like broken yet. It's it's absurd. I was gonna read a little portion from this book. Um, 
they they go on this tour for National Lampoon. Uh, it was crazy. They it's like were a just, college comedy tour. A college comedy tour. And he said, when in later in 1975, most of the National Lampoon gang were hired for a new live comedy variety TV show called NBC's Saturday Night, soon to be retitled Saturday Night Live, Meatloaf was also invited to audition for the show. Meat saw it as a chance to sing on the first show, but the team, led by uh, Lauren Michaels, a 28-year-old at the time, uh, had other ideas. As Meat recalled, they said to me, are you interested in doing a show? I said, no. A mistake. I should have done it. (laughs) 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 He was was on there, you know, three times, I think. And and very, 1978 is, is, is as early as Meatloaf plays on Saturday Night Live. That's crazy. And it's some good, great footage if you can find it. It's really good footage. He also plays like in, in the early 80s too. And he, he does a skit with Eddie Murphy like when Eddie's, Eddie's completely unknown. Uh, all of these guys, he was I think the understudy for John Belushi for Belushi. a while. Yeah. <laughs> at, at a certain point. I mean, and look, you know, Belushi, notorious hard partier, right? And, and Meatloaf is partying just as hard as Belushi. I mean, m- imagine those two together late nights the whole deal on tour like it's it's bound to be crazy nothing is over until we decide it is was it over when the germans bombed pearl harbor hell no germans forget it he's rolling and it ain't over now so the the snowball is is gaining more snow at at this point as they sort of are rolling towards bat out of hell um and steinman's on that tour too he writes some songs some sort of parody type songs and they're getting like all kinds of responses you know they're getting the the crazy crowds that are throwing things at them and and uh and he's steinman is really sort of uh developing his take on on what this live show should be he he very much says and believes that um a rock show is not he's anti-communal experience he's not in for the zeppelin dead like improvisation on stage he is crafting a show and sees it as a he keeps calling it a ritual yeah and, and that the stage is an altar and that the people in the audience are there to observe and be moved by the show and that meatloaf is an actor in in a, in a show, and right? He, yeah, the, the he always con- talks about needing to get into character to sing the songs. He's not right. just a singer. Uh, he 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 sees himself as an actor first, I yeah, think. Right, but he's and got Meatloaf this, is is a yeah is a character. Is a Meatloaf character. is a character. Yeah. Um. So they're developing this, and um, at the same time. Uh, there are two big gigs that happen. There's the Rocky Horror Picture Show movie that that Meat is in, and then, as you said, 1976, uh, the lead singer of Ted Nugent's band Derek bails. Saint Holmes, yeah. yeah, for for some reason, Derek Saint temporarily Holmes, yeah. quit the band. I wonder why. <laughs> Dealing with a giant asshole. Um, but I will say so. Anyway, uh, Meat gets the gig to be the vocalist for essentially half of the album uh free for all which is a pretty famous classic rock it album sells like seven million copies or something you got like that. one half of the album is sang by by the singer that you know if you're a nuge fan and then another guy just <laughs> second half of the album um 
He gets paid a thousand bucks. A thousand bucks. So I'll play. Uh, the music's pretty pretty great. I, here's the thing. <laughs> I don't know Ted Nugent's music at all. I, I gotta say. Well, I, I know, know you're a big damn Yankees fan. <laughs> I know how you feel about damn Yankees. <laughs> You've been outed completely. Well, what I, what I didn't realize is like. Damn it! When I'm listening to these songs, I'm like, the Nuge ha- has a vibe. Like he has a guitar tone, and it's re- <laughs> it's really good. I had I had it's forgotten '70s rock and roll. So At this point, '76. This is this is early Ted Nugent. I'm gonna play uh, "Writing on the Wall" just to get that guitar tone, which you know, it's like you instantly flash to "Dazed and Confused." Sorry, but that's great. <laughs> you can't argue with that. You can't argue with that. And then Meat's vocals are 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 awesome on They're top of that. The charts. They're great. I mean, it's still like those songs. I don't find them compelling in the way I find Steinman's songs compelling. But the sound is so quintessential. Yeah, it's rock. just a, just a train, a locomotive. <laughs> oh my god. Um. So. Uh, they manage in this period of of hunting around to to wang dang <laughs> Todd Rundgren <laughs> wang dang doodle uh, Todd <laughs> to, uh, Todd Rundgren into being a producer, but they don't have a label. And I think I get the impression that Todd Rundgren did not realize that part, no. but he was sort of like they have a little what, bit of money I to do pay. Do know him, about but... Todd Rundgren is you know he's anti-authoritarian he's a contrarian and you know if he sees something that's interesting he'll be like yeah all right let's let's do that and uh, this he seemed to think was a project he wouldn't get bored with and he didn't when, he, when, he produced, when Todd produced Graham Funk he spent two weeks of reading comic books at the control board yeah that was a story that I mean you know everybody said oh Todd Rundgren he reads com- he reads comic books uh, when he's producing your record he only had a comic book once, and that was during a string session. <laughs> Spider-Man. So, so they've been working on Bad Out of Hell, workshopping it for ages, but like the starts in 1972, 1974, they get really serious about it. Then they start recording with with, uh, with Rundgren. I think it's like they start recording him in, in, in 75. Is that right? Uh, see, it, yeah, I think recorded. in earnest is is seventy six at Bearsville. Yeah, but so but they must be, have been done doing something before that. Well, they're they've got this 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 crazy these crazy songs that are really long and interesting. And, and Rundgren, you know, Springsteen has happened, and oh, Rundgren right. does not like Bruce Springsteen. If you want to oh, read some right? interesting interviews, he's like, oh yeah, he's just like, oh, he was taking music backwards to the fifties. I want to take it forward. Uh-huh, so he saw it sort of as a spoof. Of Bruce Springsteen. Now, right, a lot of people have said about when you listen to Bad Out of Hell, he says it sounds like sort of an overcooked Bruce Springsteen record. And 
there's a couple reasons for that because Roy Bitten from the E Street Band as well as Max Weinberg from the E Street Band are both on the record. They're yeah. part of the band that plays the record. But the song Bad Out of Hell for sure sounds like something. It sounds uh, like Born to Run. There's evil in the hand, there's thunder in the sky, and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. Oh, I'm down in the tunnel with a deadly horizon. Oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter. He was stopping the foam in the heat. Oh, baby, you're the only thing in this whole world that's pure and good and right. And wherever you are and wherever you go, there's always gonna be some light But I gotta get out, I gotta break it out now Before the final crack of dawn So we gotta make the most of our one night together When it's over, you know, we'll both be so alone If, if if Springsteen is trying to make like a more like a noir film, uh, Jim's trying to make a horror uh, a Lovecraftian. Like he's 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 at no point. There are people like it just doesn't sound realistic. Like he's not trying to make it sound realistic. No. He's interested in the fantastic alternate reality. He wants to do fairy tales and yes, you know fairy tales. Perfect. Everything on steroids. He gets mad when they talk about the recording of Bad Out of Hell, which is one of the most gigantic sounding records of all time. He's like, "Oh, we wanted a boys choir on there and they wouldn't let it, us do it." You know, I, if it were up to me, we would have had more voiceovers and weird just he he, he just, wanted it all. He saw he saw it as a big movie, you know. Yeah. And so I, I remember thinking to myself, I got to write the most extreme crash song of all time. And uh, I was one of my favorite records ever was Leader of the Pack by the Shangri-Las, which was the first motorcycle crash song, I remember. And um, also it was produced like a movie. It had dialogue in it, which really affected me. It was a guy named Shadow Morton. And uh, it had the girls talking, like a girl talking to her girlfriends about the boy she's in love with. And, uh, and then you heard the motorcycle. And it, had, it was like a movie. And I wanted records to be like movies. That was a lot of the point about it, hell. Uh, I, I never wanted it to sound like a real... Thing. I never wanted to, you know, in the 50s, records started out like documentaries, in that they, they were basically a documentary of a recording session. You know, when you heard the early Elvis, Jerry Lewis, you heard the pianist, the bass player, the guitarist in the studio. And that's what they thought records were, or an orchestra and a singer. What was so great about Phil Spector, my, my hero as a producer, is he made records where you couldn't imagine musicians playing them. Like, if you listen to what I think is the greatest record ever made, You've Lost the Love and Feeling, the Righteous Brothers, you can't imagine musicians there. It just sounds like the sound emanated from the earth or the heart or the soul. You can't imagine players. And I thought that was a great advance. It was like when they enabled the camera to move in movies. It was no longer just a play. It was a movie. It had its own imagination and no boundaries. And I felt I liked that with records. And I thought Bad in Hell should be in that tradition. You shouldn't just think of a band. It should be much more like entering a film. And again, conceptually, you know, this is where this will come in in a little bit here that um, Meat and Jim consider themselves a duo um, and that, you know, if if Steinman had had his way and, and Meatloaf had had their way, it would be Bat Out of Hell starring Meatloaf written by Jim Steinman. And then he concedes that um, 
Todd was such a big part of it, yeah. it that it should also the credits should say produced by Todd Rundgren right on the front of the album. And instead, this is becomes the beginning of their troubles. Yeah, is because Bad Out of Hell is recorded. It's recorded at Bearsville, which is the band's studio right. up in you know Rundgren had Woodstock, produced right? uh, Stage Fright. Yeah, uh, and you have this wild sounding like Steinman talks about Rundgren being a genius. Uh, it plays all the guitars on the record, arranges all the backup vocals. He does have a huge hand. He's making everything happen. He's sort of making um, Jim's dreams happen. He talks about what what sort of expertise he he um, uses in creating the background vocals. And let me tell you, watching Todd Rundgren create background vocals has got to be one of the most thrilling experiences you can ever have in music. I can't even describe it. It's 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 as exciting as if you got to watch. I know this sounds hyperbolic, but as if you got to watch Mozart compose or John Lennon compose alone and could be in their head, because you could actually see it visually and hear it being created. He makes it up on the spot, and his background vocals. I always wanted tons of background vocals. I'm a huge fan of background vocals, and I didn't know at the time how brilliant he was at it. And he'd have three people, be just three people around a microphone. Him and Chasm Sultan from his band, his bass player, and Rory Dodd, who was a singer with us, and he'd hand out the parts, and they were astonishing. You know, he didn't do pads like a lot of background vocals or ahs or oohs. He did complex melodies that intertwined counterpoints, and he'd hand them out, and everyone was terrified to admit they couldn't, they didn't have a clue what to do. He would just, and I think he did it partly for perverse fun, He'd go, all right, now this is what you sing. Ah, ah, you. Then you go to the diminished, then you come up here, you do an augmented, then I want you to, he'd go on for like two minutes, that's your part, now remember that. Now you do it, and they go, what, what? And they never remember it, but it was astonishing to watch him do that. And he helped tighten everything up, he just, he was brilliant, I mean, partly because he didn't question it. You know, he didn't overthink it like this isn't what happened, this is not what's happening, how do we make this more palatable? He just did it. He accepted the music for what it was, and he did it. I, th- I think to this day he probably thinks half the ideas that I made him do in the record are ridiculous and all that, but it didn't matter. I didn't want someone sucking up, I wanted someone great, and he was just awesome. And he's such a smart ass about it too. Uh, Steinman's like, can I get a motorcycle sound? And Rundgren's like, yeah, yeah, you want a motorcycle sound? And like, Here's yeah. my guitar doing it. Yeah, but also he's like, do you want a Harley? Do you want a, a Yamaha? <laughs> do you want a Honda? Like, what's it going to be? And uh, and Steinman's like, well, I hadn't really thought about it, but I guess a Harley. Like, yeah, of course you want a Harley. You know, He's just condescending the whole time. And he's very, like, he's terrible to meet. Like, meet Har- he says he's like just the world's biggest asshole. Like he's he's like a decent guy. When you get in the studio with that guy, he's he's a dictator. But I I mean I still think you know I was hooked from the from the word go with Bad Out of Hell. The, the opening lines, you know, you have to be willing to kind of jump in. But the sirens are screaming and the fires are howling way down in the valley tonight. There's a man in the shadows with a gun in his eye and a blade shining oh so bright. Like a uh, Jim is talking trying to do the sort of the the Alfred Hitchcock thing of starting really big and sort of zooming in. Uh-huh. There's evil in the air and there's thunder in the sky and a killer's on the bloodshot streets. And down in the tunnels where the deadly are rising, oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the gutter. He was starting to foam in the heat. Mm. I mean, I think these are good. I think that's amazing Americana, over-the-top, spoofish 
lyrics. And Rundgren and I think Steinman will also say uh, that, you know, nobody could really pull that off except for Meatloaf. Like they had this voice, this guy, this character that could bring those lyrics to life and not everybody can can do that i mean i've never seen him with a peanut butter and banana sandwich but he's 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 the closest thing to an elvis and i loved elvis and i'm a i'm a true elvis lover i loved elvis when he made horrible movies and was fat i think the fat elvis was just as great i mean elvis's brilliance was he transcended everything bad songs being fat bad movies horrible co-stars you know like shelly fabraise or whoever it was it didn't matter it was elvis he could do anything and I think, uh, you know, Meat has a little bit of that. He, uh, there's a lot of Elvis soul in him. I remember when I finally got Bad Out of Hell, like, I love the first song. And then the second song starts, and it's this. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his mouth? Yes. Will he offer me his teeth? Yes. Will he offer me his jaws? Yes. Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. Again? Will he offer me his hunger? Yes. And will he starve without me? Yes. Then does he love me? Yes. Yes. On a hot summer night, would you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys. I mean, again, Spectre would never try that, and uh, the, but it sounds like the Wall of Sound, and it's this ludicrous, uh, ludicrous, over the top. And that's what, what I mean. Like, depending on on the day and my frame of mind, I'm like, shut up. And then on other days, I'm like, I'm all for it. You know, it's like, had a drink? Like, I'm, I'm doing great. This sounds perfect. Well, I think Steinman, and that's, one of the things I like about him is, like, he sees humor as a very important... Like, like Rundgren does love the fact that Steinman... Uh, gets it. ...has so much humor woven in. Right. And some of it, I mean, it, he always has... He talks about the <laughs> boner line. It, Rundgren calls it a load of inflated junk, but I'll do it. <laughs> and it becomes this monster hit. You know, they tore the hell out of it. Yeah. I, mean, um, the, the, I love every song on there except for uh, Evan Can Wait. I, I'd actually, I, like, oh, I like I like, I like the Bette Midler version better. Yeah, I do, that, which sounds like Jesus Christ Superstar. I think he was like shaping himself after that. Um, there's some good quotes. Uh, I mean, uh, there's tons of good quotes from these guys ab- about this stuff, but one that's, that's great is Steinman says, you could release that album at any time and it would be out of place. It was never in any date anyway. It was completely out of its time then. So it won't really get dated because it didn't fit whenever it was made. It might, you know, another hundred years be just right. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So he, he, from the outset, thinks of it as this outsider thing. And just the fact they both, Meat and Jim, both believe that the triumph is that they got to do it. So what comes next is, is... the cherry on top, but also the curse that they had n- never prepared for. That it would do so well. So well, but, it, but the, yes. And that meatloaf would do so well. Both. Yeah. But it's not an easy journey even to get there. Like um, they they get a, a label, which is a, an affiliate of 
CBS. It's like Epic Records or something. And Steve even Popovich, then, the, the only other person on this label at the time. Yeah, who? Ian Hunter from Mothahupa. Oh, that's that's, that's how where, that that's works. how that works. Okay. I really didn't think it was coming out, and the only reason that Bad Out of Hell ever came out was there's a song on Bad Out of Hell called "Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth." And somebody liked the first 10 seconds and thought it could be a hit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the only well, reason that in, album ever came out. In the beginning, it was very slow for you, wasn't it? After Bad Out of Hell was released. But then all of a sudden, you started selling records and it sold like 7 million Yeah, it took about, now, yeah, 7 or 8. I don't mm-hmm. know. You know, they hype, you know, they'll hype you to death. Because um. okay, okay, so the female vocalist on Paradise by the Dashboard Light, who people know, it's like the stop right there. Yeah. yeah. have to say a couple of other trivia things here but she is uh ellen foley and she is uh in the first season of uh night court, night court. <laughs> she's not the she's not the woman you you know and remember not marky post no she's not marky post but she no is, one's marky post she is uh she is in the first season but then uh she doesn't tour with them that's the, also the song where they get Phil Rizzuto to do the play-by-play right, of the right. baseball game. He swears he had no idea he was actually... But his kids are like, Dad, you know you're on this album? And it's he's like com- taking over the world? And it's completely... They, they you know, Jim is like... He's the, a devout Catholic or something like the, that. Yeah, the number one thing he wants to sell this song is to have this play-by-play that sounds like baseball, but of course it's like a, a paradise by the... They're hooking up in, the, in a car. Yeah, first and base to home. very funny the way it does but Rundgren begrudgingly admits it's like they wanted to pay this guy five thousand dollars to do it why why we could have done it and then i realized uh, he was right <laughs> oh really <laughs> he was right so yeah but these these songs are there's only seven songs on bad of the hell so i don't really know when when the tide turned it had to have been radio play and is it the uk first it's the old gray whistle test i saw well, they go on tour you know who they support Cheap Trick is the first Cheap show. Cheap Trick is the first show. First show, and they open for Cheap Trick, and evidently it's a total nightmare. They're like crucified on stage, and that helps really solidify for them that they they can't open for somebody else. Steinman believes that, like any good piece of theater, there needs to be lead up. You can't just drop this in to a bunch of drunk rock and roll fans and then expect 
to want to to see it. So the next show is a 300 person show at like a nightclub, and that's when Meatloaf sort of gets his legs under him and realizes like I, I, I'm not going to be called fat <laughs> 800 times and booed off stage, um, but rather I'm going to be praised. And, and the people in the audience are singing along to the songs because I guess it got radio play in New York. There were like a handful of DJs that actually liked Paradise by the Dashboard Light because they could, it's an eight minute song and they get they to go, go to like take a crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There are many quotes of, of, of the main DJ who breaks it. The whole point was that it gave him long enough to have a bowel movement while he played it. But it, the, uh, the the record is a phenomenon. This is the height of punk and um, 1977. I mean, right. Like and he says, it's no out of place. Of it. it sells 28 million copies or something like that before it's all said and done. It becomes one of the, the best. One, I think it's like the top... At it's, the time, for a long time, it was the third best-selling record of all time. That's um, that's insane. So it's yeah. huge in Canada. It's huge in the UK huge because they the UK. they love it for being biting and clever and all the things that a British audience would love. And it's it's sort of anti, and so they embrace it. Um, but it's big in Australia. It's I mean, big who, everywhere. Who writes Paradise by the Dashboard Light? You think it's this story of these these guy and a girl getting together, and it's the guy just does says everything he possibly can to get laid and then like the final verse is him saying i can't get out of here fast enough and it's like after or swearing down the road right yeah. it's like i've made that made a huge mistake and i mean it's a, three gr- ain't a bad. great punchline two out of three ain't bad is another punchline of a song well I, and I, that's what um the manager who also plays into the drama here um uh oh i've forgotten his name uh david something or other says that you know part of the joy part of the thing that works is that steinman comes up with these incredible titles and then back engineers to figure out how he can deliver on that that title yeah which is pretty wonderful i always start with a title 90 percent of the time and then work in usually from the title and i listen for everyday phrases because language is so rich i mean I swear to God, if people want to think of what, how to write a song, just really listen, and I guarantee you'll hear 10 phrases a day that are amazing phrases. Um, you know, I just, coming to this room, in the elevator, this woman was saying, there are so many stores to go to, I can't begin to tell you. I thought, what a great title, I can't begin to tell you. I mean, it's amazing. You know, there's just, same with you took the words right out of my mouth. I don't know where I heard of it, but it's just, what an amazing phrase, uh, if you twist it around. Which is something that has to do with country music, does a lot, but I, I, st- I once wanted to be a country singer a lot. And one thing I loved about country songs was the love of language. And that's something that Dylan brought back, too, in the Beatles with great intensity to rock and roll, was the sense of language. And, um, which is really overlooked a lot. I remember as a kid being really resentful of a guy I loved on television, Steve Allen, really started late night talk shows. And one of his big bits was to make fun of rock and roll lyrics. He'd read them very pompous, pompously, and he'd go, "Be Bapalula, she's my baby. Be Bapalula," and he'd make fun of him. And I'd be there going, "Why does he make? That's a great lyric." I was thinking, "How could anyone be so cool as to think of Be Bapalula?" And I never understood what he meant. I thought those were some of the, and you know, all the way to this day, some of the greatest lyrics aren't lyrics; the sounds. Um, uh, one of the, as a little kid, I, I remember records like "The Lion Sleeps Tonight," uh, "The Tokens," "A Wim Away," "A Wim Away," and I think, "Wow, how do they write that? It's so great." And 
if you're in love with sound and images and words, that's half the, the struggle, I think. And um, so, Battle to Hell was, I probably heard it, God knows, you know, either it was just in my brain or I might have been watching a football game and turned out, boy, that, that guy, he shot it out of that, that thing like a Battle to Hell. And all I know is I thought, that is an amazing image to be a part of the language. Just if you take it literally like a bat out of hell, and it just grew from there. You know, the first thing is that it means fast, so I think I first constructed a story with a world where someone had to do something like a bat out of hell, which was leave when the morning came. Like the night, I've always loved the night, so it's like the night offered pleasures and uh, forbidden secret, you know, wonders sensual pleasures but when the day came he had to leave like a bat of the hell oh one thing we haven't we got to talk about which is i i I, you have to admit that this is part of the phenomenon is the cover of the album yeah it's uh richard corbin who is uh, you know a comic book artist and heavy metal metal. did some of those covers and it's on i I loved the cover from i mean the second i saw it i thought what is this And and it's such a pump fake too right you think that it's like a metal album i mean it's not and it's not i mean the first song does it's sound metal large in in, in uh, uh, philosophy, <laughs> oh, right? Sure. I mean, Wagnerian is applies to to metal and and certainly Iron Maiden. Like it's maximalist music, yeah, right? There's no question about it. It's just a different sound. It's a it's There's not no crunchy guitar. No, it is. Um, though I mean, some some of the guitar work is biting, but it's yeah. it's still it's 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 musical. I mean, it's it's yeah. a it's these guys are coming from musical theater, right. and that's very clear. 100%. And people say Steinman wrote a, Rundgren says Steinman wrote a musical, and 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 uh, Meatloaf is just a st- sort of the star singer. But so what happens is the credits of the album it they want it to be by Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, and the record company convinces it to just be Bad to Hell by Meatloaf, and then at the bottom it says all songs or songs by Jim Steinman. Yeah. And on the back cover, they're both together. But it... Right. Jim thought that they were this duo. They were doing this whole thing as a duo and he feels stabbed in the back, which begins this uh, push and pull for the rest of their lives, basically. And Meat feels uh, an enormous amount of guilt and self-loathing and... um, fear at suddenly being the star when before he was part of a duo and now he's he's headlining this stuff um and and not feeling great about it he's also you know dealing with you know childhood trauma and getting drunk a lot and also trying to assert himself as an artist in what i mentioned earlier this this framework which is stick to the script right Steinman will will come up to him after the show and be like why did you say like hey Minneapolis like how we like you ready to rock Minneapolis when that's not the character of meatloaf like initially we we choreographed that you brood on stage and pace back and forth for three minutes and scare the hell out of everybody in order to like get them in gear for the musical and when you say like who's ready to party yeah (laughs) it doesn't work and he's like fuck you man you know like i'm i'm out there i gotta do something and so that's just night to night that's that's their and Jim plays conflict. piano, I think, on the first tour, but it just keeps going and going and going because it's such a huge phenomenon. And Meat gives, if you watch performances, like he's in his intensity is tuxedo you, shirt hanging open, it's incredible. long hair. But let's just face it, the look that amazing. he comes up with, it's like a pre Sam Kinison. Yes. Uh, but he's Elvis. always sweating like 
like Seven, 1977 Elvis. Yeah, 1977 Elvis. He's really big at this point, but he's got this voice that kind of sounds like sounds talk about the mountain. Right. He's got a mountain of a voice. <laughs> I forgot he, about the mountain. And uh, but they tour for like three years, and he basically has a nervous breakdown. Yeah, in fact, he sabotages the whole thing by diving off stage in Albany and breaking his legs. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> meets at the back of the stage and. And I look in his eyes, and I always felt intuitively I knew what he was thinking. It may be delusional, but I thought it. I said, that guy is going to do something now. I know it. Because when we had a talk right before the show, he said, I'm going to get us out of Albany. We're not going to play Albany. I'm not going to put you through that. I'm not going to go through it. I said, you can't, me. You already talked to David. He's not going to cancel it. They're not going to tell me what I can do. It's my life. I control my life. I can cancel my own life. And, you know, I said, whoa. He's going to do something tonight. And that night, during River Deep Mountain High, he goes running like a stallion. It doesn't stop at the edge of the stage. Just runs off the stage and falls in a complete jumbled mess on the floor, like a 20-foot drop. And you look down, and I could see it from where I was at the piano, and you saw a leg totally twisted, where you know it's been broken in about 80 spots, like the knee is parallel to the thigh. It's just horrible looking. And all the medics... And we just kept playing. We were so used to anything, we never stopped playing. We just finished the song, instrumentally, and walked off stage. <laughs> we just, just like when I saw David choking him, or him choking David. Nothing surprised me, you know, nothing shocked me. So we kept playing, and, and then a guy named Sam Ellis, who was the tour manager, comes backstage. And we're all getting dressed in the lockers, and Sam says, Okay, he's like in this really frenetic mood. He says, All right, this is really bad. Um, and I want to tell you, his leg is badly broken. All I can say is it's broken in a lot of spots. Gonna require surgery. I, I can't get a lot of people to the hospital. I can only take maybe three people. No one raised their hands. And it wasn't that we're callous. We just had to get out of there. <laughs> you know, and it just nothing was quite real in this tour. And no one raised their hands. It's, I can take three people. And it's like he was recruiting them. <laughs> Anyone wanna come? And finally I raised my hand. He says, You wanna come, Jim? And I said, no, I, I really don't want to come, but I, I just have a question. Is there any more food? Because that gruel was terrible. Is there anything else to eat? He says, this guy has a broken leg. I know, I know, but I'm really hungry. <laughs> and I just went back to the uh, motel, and later we found we had to cancel about a month because of his leg, which was a blessing in disguise. And interesting enough, when we came back, we did a, a gig at Queens College, New York, that I think is one of the best shows I ever saw Meatloaf too. And one of the reasons is he did it in a wheelchair, in a cast, in a wheelchair. And it was, you know, it was kind of like watching Franklin Delano Roosevelt with Iron Maiden. It was so weird to see a guy in a wheelchair. But it means he couldn't run around the stage. So it was just the music, just him singing it. And it was magnificent. The manager, and I still have lost his name, Sonnenberg, yeah. David Sonnenberg, um, is, you know, a taskmaster and just driving this. Because he probably is like, you know, we got to make the most money we possibly can. Yeah, uh, and and drive this. And, they don't and, want him to record and the. Follow-up. Meatloaf's a guy who can't say no. Instead, he he you know he runs away, and and they have to always go find him. And he like causes self harm. He overdoses. You know, he tries to He's commit thre- suicide. He threatens, like, threatens to kill himself times. constantly. It sounds yeah, like right. So it's a it's a constant sort of game that they all go through. It's a deeply deeply unhappy guy, and Jim is under pressure to start working on the follow up. Then there's this confusing series of events where 
Meat comes back to Bearsville to try to work on the follow-up with Jim. And uh, he, it becomes very clear that he's lost his voice. Literally for about, I think, 14 to 15 months, I was in the studio almost every night, six hours a night with him. And I'd say at the end we got possibly three lines that could be used, which is, I'm sure seems ridiculously exaggerated to somebody, but I swear to God it's the truth. Uh, three lines at most. And they all sounded like uh, Linda Blair and The Exorcist, the little girl. I mean, it was horrifying. It was like, <coughs> and, you know, what do you say when you hear a line like that? I mean, you know, he'd sing a line and go, <coughs> so that sounds a little flat. Go, <coughs> That's better. You know, it was, it was pretty frustrating, and it was horrifying for him, I'm sure. And the record company, all they knew is the first record sold 10 million copies, so... You know, somebody can do something. They just think this is ridiculous. You don't lose your voice like this. He goes to all these doctors. They everyone basically says it's psychological, but he cannot uh. sing. And he also he claims he doesn't like the songs that Jim wrote, which is a little bit belied by the fact that he ends up recording all of them 20 years later. Right. But um, Jim has this album, Bad for Good, which he wants to call Renegade Angel, mm-hmm. but he's got Rundgren there to work with him, and he records what he says are guide vocals for... Uh, it, which are out of his range. This is what he says. Mm-hmm. Again, these guys are good at talking. Yeah. Um, that So he's not quite, it's not quite his range, but Meat's just going to come in and do the vocals and stuff like that. Meat kind of falls apart. Jim gets sick of waiting. He's still sore about every. He kind of wants to show the world that it was him behind Bad Out of Hell because, again, Bad Out of Hell is a monster, monolithic, yep. monocultural phenomenon. 45 million copies. <laughs> <laughs> that, and at that point, I think like 28 million of them were sold in like the first three years. So it's... Everyone on Earth has it's it's an album bought by people that don't buy albums. That's what you would call Bad Out of Hell, right? It's an album like so. It's like oh, the critics didn't like it. That doesn't matter. People who read rock critics aren't buying Meatloaf records, right? You know, or maybe a few are. But he um, that makes sense for a lot of people. I think it was an introduction to things operatic and mythic and heightened. They didn't know it from pop music, so. I'm most proud that it did that. So but yet, even with all that money flowing in, by 1983, Meatloaf uh, declares bankruptcy because he's being sued by all different types of people, probably including Steinman, I think. Oh, he's being sued by Steinman. Yeah, and Steinman, the manager who's managing both of them, it's a, I'm not, I don't think the, the legal things are that interesting outside of to say that they go on forever. Yeah. And there's something like $100 million that's just tied up that none, neither of them have access to. Right. And so everyone assumes that they're rich, but they don't have they're any struggling. money. They're struggling. Or Steinman's got some money from, uh, but but Meat is, has to declare bankruptcy, all this stuff. He still has love for uh, Jim, but Jim goes ahead and finishes Bad for Good. Right. But he says, I'll do the, I don't worry, Meat, I'll write you a record. Um, so, Bad for Good. Do you want to yes. play some Bad for yeah, Good? Yeah, let's definitely. Like, I do, think I really love Bad for Good. I don't love all of it. It's it, not, it, there's a song called Dance in My Pants, which I think. Yeah. 
conflict goes on for about seven minutes too long. See, that's maybe. the stuff that just makes me want to like <laughs> jump out a window. Um, but the ballads. But there's there's stuff that like has has grown on me, and what I really discover is actually in this combo. What I like to hear is this this epic, you know, Steinman-ness without the meatloaf vocals, and then I like to hear meatloaf do non-Steinman songs. That's what I've sort of discovered about myself, but I really like Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. That came on the other day, Amazing. and I was like, I couldn't get enough, so I'll play that. Cherish your love. That's actually Rory Dodd singing lead on that, whose voice sounds like Steinman's but a lot better. And so he's done uh, just a, a, a treasure trove of backup vocals for you everyone. Know, every everyone. Here's my favorite little tidbit: he was the main voice in the Hungry Hungry Hippos commercial. <laughs> Rory Dodd. <laughs> oh, all these people that they work with are pros. And, yeah, they um, really are. It's hungry Hungry Hippos. First to gobble up the most marbles wins. Hungry Hungry Hippos. We're Hungry Hungry Hippos. We love to feed our face. We're Hungry Hungry Hippos. We're in an eating race. Also, this is when the music videos start to, to come in. Bad oh for gosh. Good has... A, in fact, that song that we just played has... It's like... Uh, that Kate Bush, the dreaming video crossed with like a Glenn Danzig video. Jim Steinman has really got the uniform of the like mirror glasses, the leather jacket, the leather gloves. It's an incredible relic. Let's just put it that way. But then you, you get, you still have the E street, half of the E street band playing on that record. Right. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great record.
You have another uh, Richard Corbin cover. Uh, with this time, it's like a Hawkman, sort of He-Man character. Uh, yeah. Hawkman, He-Man character with this woman sort of, you know, gazing at the moon. Great purple backdrop. It feels Wagnerian. Um, of though it's not as dynamic as the Bat Out of Hell cover. No. So not action oriented. I really like the song "Bad for Good." I think is fantastic, and it's it's if you can get past the sort of silly pun of the title, like you thought I'd be bad for a little while, but I'm going to be bad for good. It's it's a it's one of these epics of his. And he again he views these as mini movies. I think the song "Left in the Dark," which he Streisand gets a big hit with later, is another beautiful song. Mm-hmm. Surfs up is pro, surfs up and rock That's and roll dreams favorite, come right? through are my favorite. Well, yeah. surfs up. I'm thinking like there's a Beach Boys reference here. No. Uh, it's um, surfs, surfs up, up and so am I the boner line There's he always talks about hey I like the boner line you know <laughs> in, 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 in crying out loud it's the song can't you see my faded Levi's busting apart I had so many people say is that because the pants are too tight is that because the weight or is that a metaphor I said Actually, it's just a boner line. <laughs> it's just, I just want to put it in there. This is a, it surfs up the whole song. This beautiful song turns you out. see what Rundgren loves. Yeah, okay, play, play some surfs up. And my body is burning like a naked wire. I want to turn on the juice. I want to fall in the fire. I'm going to drown in the ocean and the bottomless sea. I want to give you what I'm hoping you'll be giving to me. And when the waves are pounding Again, I, I personally, with that sort of sweeping, you know, piano chorus, I want vocals that fall apart. That works for me uh, every time. I much prefer Meatloaf's version of you that. Know, the Warren Zevon like vocals is is where I want to be. So I know we're, we're we're crawling through this stuff, but let me say so that Meat does get his voice back. Sort of, it's never quite the same. His voice is never quite the same as it is if you listen to it. And yet, it's they a diff- think slightly it's different timbre. They think it's, it, it, but he comes out. It, Steinman does have a record ready for him called Dead Ringer. And Bernie Wrightson, you know, the famous uh, horror comic uh, uh, oh, yeah, artist, yeah. he does the cover. Which is an awesome cover. It's a great cover. The entire city is burning. You can see the flames like the inside of a mad jukebox. Lost boys stalk the streets with those jungle markings on their chests. Barbarians prowl in shadows, their heads rocking with rodents. Motorcycles reproduce in nocturnal alleys, groaning with greasy pleasure. And they've blown up the YWCA like a giant balloon and sent it out to sea full of screaming, lovely, lonely girls. I like the record. It's it's. They try to say it's going to be. It's less epic because it's got to be less epic than, um, right? You know, um, 
but what do you what do you like on that record? I'll tell you what I don't like. Uh, Dead Ringer for Love. I <laughs> with, hate that song. With, you mean with Cher? Yes. Okay, well, I'll tell you the song I like the most on this record. It's yeah. called I'll Kill You If You Don't Come Back. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a song that's got two major parts, and the first part is sort of this rock song. And the second part, though, i got to play, play the second part of it. Somebody whistle the girls in the sand on the beach Dreaming of boys and skin just out of reach And I saw the cheerleaders down on the track The glistening like diamonds with sweat on their backs And I saw the girls in the gangs on the street They're looking for danger and they're holding their peace And I saw the girls staying late after school They're playing with fire and oh they're playing it cool and I saw the shy girls who learning to dance They stare in the mirror and they conjure all this I saw the girls who were always alone They kneeled out in prayer and they laid up by the floor And I saw the homecoming queens of the night They're looking for magic in gymnasium lights And I saw the girls who know what love is about They try not to cry and then they try to put Oh God! <laughs> it's it's a it's of its time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also a beautiful sweeping gesture. The song "Read Him and Weep," by the way, is on there that Barry Manilow has a huge hit with. I think it's a great, heartbreaking ballad. And I've been dying for hours trying to fill up all the holes with some sense. I'd like to know why you gave up and you threw it away. I'd like to give you all the. I will say that I really like the Barry Manilow it's great. version. It's fantastic. And I watched the video today, which is awesome. I mean, it's awesome in that it is such a throwback to a, it looks like that movie Perfect with uh, John Travolta. It's like behind the scenes at a Broadway show. And Barry Manilow ends up in like clown makeup on stage and then Another Barry Manilow is in the audience, <laughs> crying, watching, and singing along as the clown cries and sings. I, I mean, don't, I don't it know. It is about complicated, that. Uh, but it's it's a really good version I mean, of the song. Dead Ringer does well in the UK, so but they sort of part ways at this point. Dead Ringer. I just have to say, did you know about this? Dead Ringer for Love with Cher. That that meet and Cher combo shows up again one year later with. Uh, 
Meatballs and Spaghetti, the Saturday morning animated uh, cartoon series about a husband and wife singing duo who roam the country in a mobile home with their friend Clyde, uh, who was their bassist, and their dog Woofer, who was their drummer. I know that they they make a full length movie for Dead Ringer that never comes out. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube, and what? it is an, it is a talk about a great relic from 1981. There's all the songs are in it. There's a story in it. There's like Meat plays two different characters, like this nerd named Marvin, and then like Meatloaf in 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 his prime. Um, it's terrible, but it's also incredible and it's it but it was it's never released we should also mention that around the same time and we brought this up in in uh the alice cooper episode uh oh he does roadie which where is, he's he's basically playing his the, the the texas version of himself he's a roadie who is helping a, a a woman go get back to alice cooper um and i like i yeah, said the then whole, the, the entire good. the person who was behind the entire movie of roadie was shep gordon the the, oh, right. the manager of alice cooper and and blondie of course and shep was the one who wanted meatloaf in it so there's he starts doing some more kind of acting at this point he's a good actor he is there's a good no actor yeah i saw you at the concert too didn't i sassy oh ma'am i, I really meant that as a compliment uh travis w redfish your humble servant man that's just about the biggest one of those things i ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I like this quote from Steinman, by the way, before we move on from him for a little bit. He says, I would listen to Wagner, followed by Phil Spector, followed by the Beatles and the Beach Boys. The common denominator was that they were at the same time thrilling and spectacular and ridiculous and absurd. And I like that combination. That's why the concept of having a 350-pound guy called Meatloaf singing my songs wasn't weird to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's really good looking. I mean, it's funny to say that, but you look at him, especially then, he's inflated, so to speak, but he's, gr- he's good looking. He's cool. He's got that Elvis thing. And plus, I always felt, and this is just an intuition, that women would have a thing of like a mothering feeling, a baby, like it's a big baby, and they'd want to mother him. And, and I always thought that was underestimated. I, I mean, I've always felt that when men decide what appeals to women, they're really idiots which they are anyway, but especially when they decide what women are attracted to. And I thought women would definitely be attracted to Meatloaf because he had a humor, a wild kind of almost pagan sensual abandon in spite of his size, which showed a great kind of gutsiness and courage. And because of his size, I thought it would bring out a certain, I don't want to sound cliche, but a certain mothering instinct. That, that women would respond to because he was like both a big baby and the knight on shining armor. Steinman moves on here to Bonnie Tyler. In 1983, Faster Than the Speed of Night, another puzzling album cover. It <laughs> yeah, looks like, like Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, is it coming out or going in? She has beams of light. It she's looks like, like a, Big Trouble in Little Welsh China. She's a singer who's, she was known as the female Rod Stewart and her early records are great, by the way. I oh, really? I need to, to, listen to, them. to get in. It's a Heartache is a wonderful song. It's a heartache Nothing but a heartache Hits you when it's too late Hits you when you're down. 
But he takes her in a different direction. Well, he's introduced to her by the uh, head of A&R at CBS who says, do you want to help produce her, move her to the next level? You ready for the most rock and roll uh, A&R man name you've ever heard? What? Muff Winwood. <laughs> oh, gosh. Really? Muff yeah, Winwood? Muff oh. Winwood. I've been asked to do a lot of heavy metal groups and stuff like that, and this was different. Also, I did think she had one of the greatest voices yeah. I'd ever heard. And also had been not really used well. When I heard the album from It's a Heartache, uh, though that was a great song, I just felt that they weren't really getting out what she was capable of. The fact is that uh, the voice itself is probably one of the most passionate voices I've ever heard in rock and roll. I'd say, you'd have to say since Janis Joplin, I don't think there's been a voice in this style that any female singers had. There's been a lot of pretty good rock and roll singers, but no one who's had this kind of raw nerve sound. Uh, when It's a Heartache was out, the general consensus was to compare it a little bit to Rod Stewart because it has some of the sort of horse quality, but I, I think that's pretty deceptive in that Rod Stewart's voice to me has always had a sort of silky, smooth, very kind of slick quality. Great voice, but very different. Bonnie seems to be much more of a passionate sort of exposed nerve. It works clearly because he not only writes the song Fast and the Speed of Night, which is pretty good, but he that's this is where Total Eclipse of the Heart. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit lonely and you're never coming around. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit tired of listening to the sound of my tears. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by. Turn around. Every now and then I get a little bit terrified and then I see the look in your Turn eyes. Around, bright eyes. Every now and then I fall apart. Now, Meat always thinks that Jim held that back from him, but he says that he had written it for a Dracula movie and he knew he wanted a woman to sing it. Oh, he calls it a danceable exorcism. (laughs) (laughs) 
He's got lots of phrases like that. A danceable exorcism. It's a number one hit, smash. And at the same time, at number two is a song called, another Steinman song called Making Love Out of Nothing at All. Oh, man. By Air Supply. I love that song. I love Air Supply. I will not be ashamed about that. Um, well, this is pretty funny, though, if you if you like uh, Air Supply. because And I do. Stin- Steinman said... <laughs> He would because uh, you know Meat loved that song and really wanted to record it. Oh really? Jim said uh, he would say that when he gave uh, "Making Love Out of Nothing" all to Air Supply or quote two boring idiots from Australia" <laughs> as he memorably <laughs> described them, he did it because he needed money in the post bat legal freeze. Oh my god! <laughs> that... Two boring idiots from Australia. You know, when we're off the road, we try and play tennis and. Tennis is about tennis yeah, is yeah, it, well, yeah. it happens to everybody. We I'll play very well too. Do you? Yeah. Are you tough? We're all right, aren't we? We play doubles. Oh, doubles? Yeah. yeah. He handles the net because everything. Yeah. His tough arms to get over. So big, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Where have you settled in in Southern California? I live in Malibu. Oh well, see, that's pretty good. I like huh? the sea. And I like yeah. to be near the sea and the fresh air. And the rocks falling on the street. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Can no. I drive a car? It's true. It's wonderful yeah. there. And you settled in? I'm looking in uh, Pacific Palisades. Yeah. Well, if you move into Pacific Palisades before too long, you'll be in Malibu. <laughs> I guess. <yeah. laughs> Only Californians know that joke. See, Pacific Palisades is at the top of the hill, and it's the hill is slowly moving down into Malibu. Graham likes that joke. <laughs> that is so good, and I feel like probably appropriate <laughs> i mean i like i've been listening to some air supply this is some quality soft rock from australia uh, yeah let's 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 play that for god's sake And like all of these these mega hits that um, he produces and, and writes for other folks in in the early '80s here, they just build to these tremendous climaxes. But but that song that is a 
near perfect song. It's also, he had sort of, as you were saying, hammered out or come up with the initial idea for, for the melody uh, in a movie called, uh, he, he scored a movie called A Small Circle of Friends. And it literally, you start that movie, it's you, you hear making love out of nothing at all. I would just think like, if you didn't know the connection here and you randomly chose to watch that movie, be like, isn't that making love out of nothing at all? It's such a great, you know, by the way, he it's re- directed by the guy who directed the first Fast and the Furious, by the way. I looked that up. Is that a fact? Yeah. The, um, he has Bonnie Tyler record a, like a nine minute version of making love out of nothing at all, uh, in the nineties oh. with like an operatic singer. It's, it, it's, 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 it's really good. It's 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 hard to find because it's like really? he, he for some reason Jim is revisiting stuff a lot in the nineties, but yeah. he he's also y- using you know recreating the the magic over and over again with with this team of some of the E Street Band as you mentioned. Um, Rick Derringer is is crossing over between Meat and Steinman a lot, um, yeah. and some of the other um, guys from the Edgar Winter Group from the seventies. Rundgren is is often doing background vocals or duetting. Mm-hmm. Um, he duets in, with Bonnie Tyler. Yeah, on the next album they do. Um, There's the, he, Jim Steinman is a he know he he knows his crew and he he uses them and over he's and over he's again. this is his great streak. I mean Barry yeah. Man, the Read 'Em and Weep is number one on the adult contemporary charts for eight right? weeks. I couldn't do I couldn't write an original, so I suggested to the president of the record company that he listen to this second Meatloaf album. Because there were all these songs that got ignored, no one really heard them. I thought they were good songs, and I thought that one would be appropriate. And he did, and decided he was going to do it. They wanted to do it, and I felt, well, if he's going to do it, I should produce it, because I want to protect the song, make sure it's done right. So again, it was in service of the song. And besides, I thought it'd be fun if I could someday, if I ever had grandchildren, or if I ran an orphanage, I could say to all the little tykes, I did a Barry Manilow record, they'd throw porridge at my face and things. And it was just another experience, just something to do. I mean, it was, it was a bizarre one. We did it, it was like two days, and also I got the chance to work with Elton John's band, which is one of my favorite bands of all time. And Making Love, Ed and Nothing at All, and Total Clips of the Heart are one and two on the American charts at one point. There's, uh, you know, you have... Um, the Streisand song, uh, Left in the Dark. Left in the Dark is a smash. And then, of course, you have uh, Holding On for a Hero, which is the on, you know... Footloose. It's Footloose in 1984, which is a, if, with Bonnie Tyler. It's this a, is 82, 83, 84. 84. And it's just happening. And in the middle of it, he does he does the score for this film, Streets of Fire, oh. um, which Diane Lane is in, and uh, it's Walter Hill, you know, who does the Warriors. I'll be coming for her, and I'll be coming for you too. Sure you will, and I'll be waiting.
You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before. Where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... Stay and see the show, it's really good. The brutal... I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. You're lying in your bed and on a Saturday night You're sweating buckets and it's not even hot But your brain has got the message and it's sending it out To every nerve and every muscle you got You've got so many dreams that you don't know where to put them So you better turn a few of blues Your body's got a feeling that it's starting to rust You better wrap it up and put it to use So, I've never seen it. Have you seen it? Uh, oh, I was obsessed with this movie oh, for, you were. for quite a while, and that actually got in my twenties got me interested in Steinman because I did know that he um, was involved with this. Another Edgar Winner uh, graduate is Dan Hartman, who does the famous song from from that movie. I can dream about, I can dream you. about you, which is a great pop song. Um, but uh, Wait, Nowhere that? Fast is on the soundtrack, and Tonight is What It Means. Uh, Tonight is What It Means to Be Young yeah. is a masterpiece. Yeah. And it's just about 15 choruses wrapped together and with like six women singing simultaneously. Yeah, he creates a band called Fast, or no, Fire Incorporated, um, with Rory Dodds in there as well as, as these female singers. Um, and they... They do the original songs for Streets of Fire, which, as you said, is written by and directed by Walter Hill. And what's so strange about this is it's about a teen dystopia. It's in, like, a future Chicago. Like, the cast is insane. It has Rick Moranis. Um, Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. Uh, and it's... it's arty and weird and Ry Cooter works on the music too I mean <laughs> it's just it uh Joel Silver is the producer um it's it's sort of a like Hollywood at its most absurd Hollywood 80s Hollywood at its most absurd um and it they it's a flop done 48 hours right they had just done 48 hours and they knew that the studio was sort of hot on walter hill and joel silver wanted to put something together as quickly as possible what i was getting to is that this seems like a world created by jim steinman and yet he has nothing to do with the story they they sort of after they don't get springsteen because streets of fire is pulled from um, a Springsteen song yeah and they don't get that, and so they go to Steinman, who whips up some songs like. Can I? I gotta in a play flash. tonight. Yeah. Is, tonight is what it means to be young. I got a dream about an angel on the beach and the perfect waves are starting to come. His hair is flying out in ribbons of gold, and his touch has got the power to stun. I got a dream about. Jewels are light and the earth glowing, starting to shake. But I don't see. 
it just keeps exploding and exploding and exploding. And you think, how could this guy put anything more into these songs? Steinman, he writes ones. I mean, he's like like two songs a year at this point. I mean, he's not he's not writing that. Or he, he's working on musicals and stuff. But like he he wants to be make sure that every song he writes is a classic at this point. I think, and he's sort of convinced of his own hype. I mean, he's, he's convinced of his own hype. I I think the songs "Nowhere Fast" and "Tonight Is What It Means to Be Young" are are brilliant songs. Yeah, they're just in in the wrong movie. It's a, <laughs> no. it's a giant flop. And the back half of this film is it's garbage. That's why you didn't like the violence because there's nothing substantial there. It just leads to not true. Because oh, no. what I said was I don't like the violence as much as I like the rock and roll. I liked it after they caught her because then at the end you have those four black guys who come in who sing backup for. That's just at the you, very end. What the, it leads the major chunk of the back end of this story is a, a confrontation between frankly two very uninteresting characters and extremely violent. I felt beaten up at the end of this movie. I didn't like it at the end. Gee, I felt okay. Um, Steinman gets to see it finally, and he leans over to Jimmy Iovine, who's who's also producing music on, on the movie, and it's like, this is a shitty movie, isn't it? And you're like, yep. And Joel Silver is evidently already like working on the next deal and, and moving on. There's an incredible quote. Remember the title of the song we just we we uh, just were listening to. Um, one of the producers describes the fallout as they realize they've got a flop on their hand, and says Joel got off the phone with Universal and said, "We're dead." We sat down. I remember in a little park in downtown L.A. and we started giggling in that way that people do when things are terrible. Uh, there's the song in the movie called Tonight is What It Means to Be Young. And I remember in the park, Joel saying, today is what it means to be dead. <laughs> the, the actors in the movie, remember, this is also a musical. Oh, Michael Paré is the other actor in it. But they lip sync to the songs. So it's like a sci-fi, dystopian, Western musical. And Diane Lane and Willem Dafoe are like singing along to these songs. That goes by, but you know, then you have for Footloose, he does Holding Off for Hero, huge hit. He does uh, Rock Me Tonight, I think, by with Billy Squire. Oh, you know about Rock Me Tonight, right? Talk to me. So, uh, I think I we talked about this in the Van Halen episode, but um, <laughs> I cut it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but rock me to uh, Billy Squire was on the up and up. I think he's an underrated guitarist. I think he's a fantastic vocalist. I love a lot of his songs. Um, uh, Jim Steinman produces this album, and Rock Me Tonight has this video. Uh, music videos have been playing into to all these songs. By the way, it's becoming a phenomenon. And Rock Me Tonight, the video where Billy Squire ends up he's just kind of in like silk pajamas dancing around an apartment kind of like uh uh in what would be perceived then by you know dudes rock dudes as a feminine way and it 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 contributes to squire sort of watching his audience leave him and him his career tanking because um essentially sort of a, a homophobic perspective on 
uh, Billy Squire. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. Sorry. This is really funny, though, because people, like, it's just... They're a, just it's like, like it's yo, a, what's up with Billy? I thought like, he was... Oh. It's a real misfire, though. Like, yeah, they, and it just screws... Everyone. But it, what's crazy is that, like, if Mick Jagger did the same video, like, It'd nobody... It would be fine. Yeah, but Billy Squire... But Squire's in 1984, like Billy Squire does it. Like and a he, guy, and he's, like, he's not... He <laughs> doesn't work out. So um, then he gets hired by uh, Def Leppard. Oh, point. so this... I, I told you this. Air Supply and this Def Leppard story are why I was like, oh, we got, we got to do this episode. Um, Joe Elliott, the lead singer of Def Leppard, tells the story of Mutt Lang needed to take a break for, for pyromania. No, not pyromania. For hysteria. Yeah. Um, which becomes their biggest album. And Mutt Lang was their guy. Uh, and he has to take a break, and so the the label puts Steinman on the job, and evidently Def Leppard are like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, <laughs> all he does evidently is eat up their budget. Literally, he just orders like lobsters and and uh, you know shrimp cocktail like constantly, and really sort of offers no insight to them. So eventually they fire him, um, but he's just there to 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 soak up the budget and just kind of live large. In the meantime, by the way, he does work with Ian Hunter and Ian Hunter and Mick Ronson, I think have gotten together and they produced the, one of the albums that Ellen Foley does. Uh, It's actually a really good record. I think it's called Thunder and Lightning. Um, It's worth seeking out. They have a lot of good people on there. In 1985, after he gets fired from Def Leppard, he uh, writes, composes, and produces the theme song for Hulk Hogan. (laughs) (laughs) And doesn't that end up being on a Bonnie Tyler? Yeah, ravishing diamond fashion. Like it doesn't really take off with Hogan. Hogan like uses a different (laughs) song all the time, and so they just uh, he writes lyrics and she sings it as ravishing. Ravishing, ravishing. ravishing. The next, though, the next Bonnie Tyler record comes out, and I just have to say, there's a song on there. He, he writes a few songs in there. There's no huge hits on there, outside of I think I think actually holding on for a hero is sort of put onto that record. Oh yeah. Um, but it's called like Secret Dreams and Forbidden Desire or something like that. Yeah. It's a, it's one of these songs that is one of these album titles that's a little excruciating, but um, 
it has uh, a song on there called Rebel Without a Clue. Okay. Which I think is really good. Secret Dreams and Forbidden Fire. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, Rebel Without a Clue that is he writes and records... It also has some, you know, Desmond Child shows up on there. That's right. Who will take be, become a player later. Also Brian Adams, right? Of course Brian Adams. <laughs> Brian Adams has traveled from Kiss to, you know, Bonnie Tyler. I think Tina she, Turner. He was Tina part Turner, of that. Tina Turner. He's got, he's all over the place. And um, there's a song called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man, which Desmond Child writes, which does okay, I think. But it's... Um, and Loving You is a Dirty Job, the duet with... Yeah, oh yeah, that, that is a hit. And that's a good song. If the fears could only be forgotten, we could pull all the barriers down. Would you follow your dreams, Desire? Would you follow your secret dreams and fall in it? Let's just be out of this town. It's been nothing but dreams. It's been nothing but dreams until now. Nothing but dreams. So, so during this time, Meatloaf is recording still. By the way, and he gets these two albums. He's getting hits in in the are they in in the UK? They're not big, but so he, there's uh, Midnight at the Lost and Found, and like there's two others that literally sound like other songs that you've heard. They just feel yeah, like it's, they've it's been sort lifted. of rock by numbers. But Tom Dowd records the first the first one, Meet Midnight Lost and Found. And the, the lead song is is pretty good, but it has got this like Celtic vibe to it that you do not expect. It doesn't do that well, but you know who writes some songs in there is Dick Wagner, who plays a lot of guitar for Kiss and a lot of guitar for Alice Cooper during the same time. Well, let's not forget that uh, uh, Bob Kulik is one of the guitarists in the mixed... Uh, Early on, on the the Bat Out of the Hell tour, and his brother is Bruce Kulick, who yeah. is a guitarist for Kiss. <laughs> There's a lot of Kiss overlap. Too. In fact, they tried to at one point before they got Rundgren for Bat Out of Hell, they were trying to get Ezrin. Is that fact? Yeah, yeah. Ezrin would have been a perfect for him. Yeah, I mean, he would have probably played it more straight. They just couldn't get to him, evidently. They had, but um, I think the Rundgren thing worked out. Then uh, Bad Attitude comes up, um, which is it feels more meatloafy because it's got like a big, you know. Uh, kind of devilish looking uh, uh, motorcycle on the cover. Can I play one song from uh, uh, Midnight at the Lost Yeah, yeah. It's a song called Don't You Look at Me Like That. And the reason... I I, I ended up really liking this song, but um, it sounds... 
there's a little sort of synthy or string sound that uh, sounds like the War of the Worlds. Uh, Jeff, what's his face album that we talked about in the Thin Lizzy uh, thing? So anyway, I was wrong. It's called If You Really Want. You say you're all alone, and after all the changes you've been through today, you could use a little tenderness right now. Okay, I've been alone, and I can understand the way you. I really like that because it's it's meat is trying out another character. I mean, it's all extensions of that meatloaf character, but you know, he really he he does some acting, and that's sort of like a Dracula thing going on. They the that that record bad attitude um, is, is the next one after Midnight Lost and Found, which. Has Steinman, right? Has has two Steinman songs on there. Oh, but it's, not got, him. it's got it's got his version up. of Surf's Up, which I think is brilliant, and Nowhere Fast, which I think is really great too. But it starts out with a song called Bad Attitude with Roger Daltrey singing on it. Oh, yeah. And you can almost not tell them apart. It's like if listen to it if like and try that to is hear true. them. Like you can hear Daltrey a couple times being like, Oh, there I think that's him. It's a strange experience. Um Bad Attitude. You got Then we get to sort of the bottom of the barrel, which is Blind Before I Stop. I disagree. And, um, well, I mean, there's some good songs on here. I like this but, like, album a it lot. It does not uh, do, it really does, oh, yeah, doesn't yeah. go anywhere. No, no, no. There's a song on here that's, I, that I will say there's one song on here that I think is basically unlistenable, which is called Masculine. <laughs> yeah. That Rick Derringer writes. Yeah. And it's it's really hard to, to listen to. Though, I mean, it... It kind of sounds like a song that Sammy Hagar would write. And later on, come to find out, Sammy Hagar does get a couple songs on some Meatloaf records. Really? Yep. Meatloaf, by the way, is writing some songs in here too, and um, they're not all—they're not all terrible. I gotta ask you about this though. Go ahead, you know, shoot the shot. All right, here, Meatloaf, "Blind Before I Stop." Now, how'd you come up with "Blind Before I Stop"? I mean, I heard that as a kid when your mom would yeah, yell yeah, sh- in the bathroom. It's not what it means. Oh, okay. <laughs> come on, Dave. Come on. <laughs> now, actually, I came up—I came up with the uh, verse in 1979. Yeah. I came up with the bridge to the song in 1981. 
I came up with the chorus to the song in the movie Blade Runner. Funny, is that, is that weird or what, you know? Okay, so Blade Runner, I'm sitting in Blade Runner, and I'm going, huh? I'll go blind before I stop. I'm gonna have to come and la la la. And the guy's behind me is going, shh. I'm going, I'm writing. <laughs> so I eventually had to get up and leave. So that's, that's where that came from. So it was from. A, a process over the years, right? Yeah, just because they're gonna have to come and lock me up. Plus, it's, it's my life. I'll go blind before I stop. What do you really? like off of uh, Blind Before I Stop? <laughs> um, I like Special Girl. Uh, that's, it's, it's one of my, uh, spoiler alert, it's, it's one of my picks at, oh, at the end. Uh, the, the same year, it's covered by America. It was written by Eddie Schwartz, who wrote um, uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Which oh, really? Pat Benatar sings. And also uh, Don't Shed a Tear, which is the um, Paul Carrick song. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, Special Girl. this song which is true about most of the songs on um the the two albums not not the one with surfs up is that these they're just of the of the moment pop songs like (laughs) they are not notable meatloaf songs but i i just like that meatloaf is inserting himself into pop songs of the time and he's but he's 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 struggling he's struggling out he's struggling for sure i think there's um what I, oh, by the way, though, yeah. on, on sort of a Phil Collins note, he does get invited to be in Miami Vice to to actually play someone not once but twice, oh. and and turns it down. Really? He he also turned on a guest part in the quintessentially eighties to keep top show, uh, Miami Vice twice. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It's a terrible idea. He should he should have stuck with it. He would have been great. He would have been great. But there's um, he's floundering. Steinman can kind of do no wrong, but Steinman is building up to something. And what he's building up to is a girl group that he's putting together called Pandora's Box. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would love to know. Get it? Yeah, yeah, I get it. (laughs) You get it? (laughs) Jim? Pandora's Box is always one of my favorite myths, and that's why I thought this would be a great name for this group. I really wanted to do a girls group very badly. Either that or I just really wanted girls. I'm not sure which it was, but I was trying to combine professional and personal concerns. And, uh... I really wanted to do a group like, the, when I was growing up, one of the biggest groups to me was the Shangri-Las. Shangri-Las were the favorite group I ever grew up with. Just when I was reaching puberty, they wore black leather, they had long blonde hair, they were really filthy, they came from Queens, New York. Everyone in Queens, New York is really filthy, but not everyone in Queens, New York wears leather. That's the reason they were stars and the other people in Queens are real schmucks. So Steinman is, is, is got the, he puts everything he has. I mean, where's his... He's, he's been doing really well and he thinks he's, the wind's at his back, he's going to put together this record. Um, 
of uh, he's writing songs for the 1989 movie Rude Awakening. I mean, everything's <laughs> looking up. He does. He produces. I think the soundtrack for Iron Eagle. Um, I feel like Cheap Trick did that too. Yeah, and he, uh, he and does, Lindsay Buckingham. He does keep touching on like Ian Hunter. I think he produces one of Ian Hunter's singles in around here. But uh, the song, uh, the album, Original Sin. Okay. Oh, and he works with the Sisters of Mercy. I, I'm not as interested in that stuff. But no. the album Original Sin is released, and he, again, has put everything he's gotten to it. And it contains basically seven Steinman epics, and then like a couple of weird spoken word things, and a couple of strange <laughs> covers that don't really go anywhere. But the songs that he, every single one of those, well, six of them are fantastic. The song "Original Sin" is becomes one he keeps revisiting. The song "The Future's Future Just Ain't What It Used to Be" is on there. Um, the song "It's All Coming Back to Me Now." Uh, the song "Good Girls Go to Heaven and Bad Girls Go Everywhere," uh, which he 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 basically thinks it's the best thing he's ever done. Mm-hmm. It's over the top in 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 every conceivable way. No, um, and it doesn't. It 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 they don't even. Put it out in America for some reason. It comes out in England. It doesn't do well. Um, it does well in like South Africa, but sales are low enough that they decide not to put it out in North America. And he's the song. It just won't quit. Is on there. These are great, great Steinman songs. Yeah. And this is basically what drives him to reconsider working with Meatloaf again. So what year is that? That it, it's 1989 is when it comes out. Because it's weird that Meat in an interview I saw said that they started working on Bad Out of Hell to around 86, but that he must have been. They started working on it in 89, I think, okay. around there. That they it takes them four years to do Bad Out of Hell too. <laughs> I just saw. Okay, yeah, I just saw a quote that's coming up. That's well, hilarious. Let me just play you one thing. Let me actually play the title song, "Original Sin." The natives are restless tonight. Which again, all a lot of these are stuff that was originally conceived for Peter Pan stuff. You can dance forever. You got a fire in your feet, but will it ever be enough? It knows that it'll never be enough. You can fly and never land and never need to sleep, but will it ever be enough? It knows that it'll never be enough. It's not enough to make the nightmares go away. Bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger from there. There, I just, there is a time where, like, whatever, 27-year-old me would have been so into that. (laughs) 
<laughs> I just know it. Like every element about it. Like that's exactly it. That's what I meant about contradicting myself. It's like, you know, I, I can make fun of this stuff, but at its heart, like it ends up getting you. It just will. Well, they start just so knock your socks off. Sometimes the, he. It's interesting. You listen to the record. There's no reason why it didn't do well outside of the fact that I think people were sick of Jim Steinman. Like, yeah. and they and maybe eighty nine. It, maybe people are just starting to tire of that sound. Yeah, well, I mean, like, Appetite for Destruction's coming out. Right. Um, they have... Uh, so, Bad Out of Hell, I mean, they start working on it, I think, in 1989, I believe, is what they say. Like, uh, they say it basically took four years. And, you know, at this point, Jim's output is slowing down. He writes, like, four new songs for it. And everything else is a song that's been written before. The best album I'll probably ever make is Battle of the Hell. I can't imagine, you know, making a better one. I guess I could, but I, I can't imagine it. Because it, it, was, it was like, you know, like any birth. It, it was just, it just poured out. I, I didn't really expect to do an album. I didn't know what that meant. So whatever I was doing was so intuitive that I didn't know how to censor myself or know that I w- didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was too smart to know I was really stupid. And so um, I just did it. Either they're bad for good bad songs for good, or yeah. they're original sin songs. But the big, the one that he's got sort of in his back pocket that he was sort of saving for it is that I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Which we haven't seen before, right? That that's it's, it no, that's, debuts on the on Bad Out of Hell too, and it's <laughs> yes. What do you think? Huge. About it? it's uh, a, I mean, look, the I album think it's, version of it is is much more fun, I think, than the single version that I knew. I, I, it's it's delicious that song. I well, mean, you know it's who directs, undeniable. You know who directs the video. I do. I do. We nuke this thing from the inside. How? Oh. We drill. We're bringing the world's best deep core driller. The United States government has just asked us to save the world. We're talking about space, right? Outer space. This is like deep blue hero stuff. I'm there. I'm with you. Beat me up, Scotty. This is where Michael Bay gets his start. Is with right. meatloaf. Propa- propaganda is the name of the company that always was was doing these commercials and and music videos in in the early '90s. Um, yeah, this is pre-Bad Boys. Um, Phantom of the Opera, essentially, with with Meatloaf is what the video is. <laughs> yes. um, and a producer said that it had the budget of basically four weddings and a funeral. That's the movie. Insane. It's That's it's insane. like a movie-level budget. It's like 90s, uh, you know, Hollywood gone gone wild. It's um... And I, that's what I don't get, is like, no, the public... Even though this is a huge album, that song is huge. Who was asking for this in 1993? <laughs> like who? Like how could they have paid for uh, that that video? How did the label justify this? The return of Steinman and Meatloaf. Like uh, no one who's wanted calling this. for that. I mean, Meatloaf was really at the bottom of the barrel. He was like playing, you know, casinos and right. stuff like that. And here you have in Dubai, you know. Right. And um, this was, I think it was reached number one in <laughs> 28 countries. It was number one in the U.S. for five weeks. It was, um, you know, it was one of, it was one of the longest singles. I think it was the longest single in the, that had ever topped the U.K. chart, um, beating out uh, uh, Hey Jude. Or maybe it's the same, about the same amount of Hey Jude. It's just absurd. It's the biggest hit of 1993 in the United Kingdom. And it's, Did you see the, um, <clears throat> the quote that Steinman has about why he called it Bad Out of Hell, too? 
Because he's like, <laughs> what is that? like, he was like, you know, it's. It, it, I thought of the first album as as this epic movie, and of course, you know, you you want to have a sequel for for an epic movie. I mean, what would you do without a Die Hard two? <laughs> without a Die Hard two? <laughs> oh, we are just up to our neck in terrorists again, John. But for police officer John McLean. It's just another Christmas. You're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. I I had heard him talk about, uh, you know, about... um, Godfather too, but he's like, I just want to make it more epic, more darker, bigger, louder. I just thought Die Hard Two is not the comparison you want to make. And then I love what Meatloaf says about why they called it Bad Out of Hell Two. He says, "Quote, because that would help it sell shitloads." <laughs> you know who plays piano on Bad Out of Hell Two? By the way, uh, not just Roy Bitten, but Bill Payne from Little Feet. Oh, El- Rundgren's El- back. Ellen Foley's back. Yeah, they're all they're Rory ba- Dodd's back. <laughs> Rory Dodd, don't worry. Rory Dodd, <laughs> hungry, is there. hungry hippos came back for part two. I think Bitten's on there, but not Max Weinberg. So the the songs. I mean, let me just. I'll just. I'll just. I think that Meatloaf's version of Rock and Roll Dreams Come True comes through is even better than Jim's. I think it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. It just won't quit. It sounds like a Meatloaf song that should have been. Um, Objects and mirror. Objects. That's. <laughs> I mean, that's the most absurd song. That might be the most. He's like, I want to uh, write the biggest car crash teenage song I could ever write. I saw the most perfect quote. Somebody was talking about Steinman and his songs and called them needlessly epic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, objects made and for mirror. Like the Beavis and Butthead uh, yeah. treatment, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. But there's know, a guy. Yeah, I love that the first mention, you know, it's so it's about a guy who's who's well, I guess thematically the album is moving on from Bad Out of Hell. It's no longer, you know, the the teen paradise. Now it's 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 the teen dream collapsing, right? And this one is about regret and uh regret over a lifetime and all the people lost. But one of the <laughs> not that mature though. Let's not let's not give it too much. One of the people lost at the beginning is Kenny. <laughs> Kenny. <laughs> when I grew up with my best friend Kenny, we were closest any brothers that you ever knew. It was always summer and the future called. We were ready for adventures and we wanted them all. There was so much left to dream and so much time to make it real. But I can still recall the sting of all the tears when he was gone. They said it crashed and burned. I know I'll never learn why any boy should die so young. We were racing, we were soldiers of fortune. We got in trouble, but we sure got around. There are times I think I see him peeling out of the dark. I think he's Just a car And I 
objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. And objects in the rearview mirror may appear closer than they are. <laughs> well, Lost Boys and Golden Girls is on there, which is bad, good from good, another Peter Pan anthem. Uh, Wasted Youth is one of the ridiculous... Uh, things that Jim Steinman does, his monologues. It's actually nine songs, and like three of them are new, and Life is a Lemon and I Want My Money Back. That's got <laughs> that kind of was one of the back. ones where I was like, God damn it. <laughs> it's pretty bad. But I love Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, by the way, the video stars. I don't know. Like, I think maybe her first or second role ever. Let me guess. Cameron Diaz? Close. Okay. Same era. Angelina Jolie. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She's 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 in it and uh she's, you know, looks like a young Angelina Jolie. <laughs> there you go. You gotta, <laughs> gotta give it to her. So this is a an unexpected epic smash. It still doesn't sell anywhere close to Bad Out of Hell One, but it sells like, you know, fourteen million copies or something like that. It's a it's a huge, huge hit. Um and so that's uh Meat becomes starts filling stadiums again, uh, especially in in England. It doesn't is not doesn't stay that long. He goes soon. It's uh, wait, but just before we move on, I yeah, just yeah. have one question for you. What do you say? He won't do what? But I won't do that. I mean, that's, apparently when they're making it, they're like, you know, everyone's just gonna be asking, like, what is it that he won't do? And like, <laughs> everyone, of course, thinks it's some sex act and is it not that's what i thought it was I thought, i'm sure it occurred thought, to steinman he's like i think it'll sell more that way or something like that but of course it's like they I won't say lie to you like i mentioned i won't leave you like uh, it's mentioned oh right yeah he says it's mentioned like nine times and of course like steinman goes on and on so much that you forget what it was that <laughs> he won't do it becomes a running joke it's like a, and, and by the way if you listen to an early bonnie tyler like version i think of a Going through the motions, perhaps, or one of these song cover songs oh, it's uh, a, that a Blue Oyster cult or so, so that was, and, and all of a oh, sudden, yeah, right. you listen to it one on one of her earlier records, and all of a sudden you hear Jim Steinman out of the blue in 1985 saying, "I would do anything for love, but I won't do that." And then like that's it. He just decided he liked that line, so he puts it in there. Right, right. And like Steinman, like there's no idea worth not doing like six times. <laughs> so. Steinman, by the way, at that point, yes, he is also working on a musical for Phantom of the Paradise, which makes no sense to me since Phantom of the Paradise has was plenty a of music. But the the demo tape of it is a lot of songs you would know, like um, uh, you've heard it, you've heard all the songs. Like there's nothing, or a lot of the songs are. He keeps working with a song called "Who Needs the Young," which I don't think is that good, but that's part of it. Is Steinman eventually okay? So musical wise, the the big musical that he almost gets off the ground and for whom the music is mostly original is he tries to write a Batman musical. Oh. But um, I've always loved Batman because of that because he's, he's really human and he's the way he is because he saw his parents being slaughtered. He's a total psychotic, neurotic, non-functioning human being who, you know, a playboy who has a totally superficial, silly life by day and by night gets dressed up in cod pieces, fetishistic vinyl with enormous nipples and, <laughs> and goes out with Robin on these adventures. I don't think you can find anything kinkier. <laughs> and uh, yet he's a hero. And it's that combination that's really cool. The complexity of the human element, the vulnerability, and the power and just sheer visceral fun and excitement combined of the gothic transfigured image. He writes some really good songs for it. There's a song called In the Land of the uh, 
Pig, The Butcher is King, hmm. which I really like. It's on Bad Out of Hell 3. Okay. Um, and I like Meatloaf's version, but it was written for that. Simon Songs did make it to Bad Out of Hell three because I know he was like he had yeah. a stroke and then was became more and more ill and Meat decided to go on without him with with Desmond Child right yeah but before that there's Welcome to the Neighborhood which has some Diane Warren songs which are just oh they're okay they're not uh-huh. great what I like is the the, the non Steinman. Uh, uh, meatloaf records there's always someone trying to do a Steinman song and those tend uh-huh. to be interesting because they're just kitchen sink productions right, I, always, right, right. I always find that interesting but he does Welcome to the Neighborhood he does uh, um, what was it he, we have to mention though uh, just before we get into the 2000s or late late 90s um, and you already mentioned it but 1996 is <laughs> it's all coming back to me now oh, of course Gosh. by Celine Dion it's all coming back to me now is uh, my attempt to write the most passionate romantic song I could ever write I was writing it while under the influence of Wuthering Heights which is one of my favorite books and it's always made much too polite it always has been in the movies and this is in the Wuthering Heights of Kate Bush that little uh, fanciful Wuthering Heights this is the, like the scene they always cut out of Wuthering Heights is the scene where Heathcliff digs up Catherine's body and actually dances in the moonlight on the beach with it and, and I just think you can't get more extreme more operatic or passionate than that and I was trying to write a song about dead things coming to life I was trying to write a song about being enslaved and obsessed by love not just enchanted and happy with it it was about the dark side of love but about the extraordinary ability to be resurrected by it once dead and I, I just tried to put everything I could into it and I'm real proud of it. it it's his smash. Smash, his only Grammy. Um, and evidently, it's a Celine Dion song that I like. No, it's, a, it's a beautiful <laughs> I, song. I, I, like, I, I never understood her. I, you know, the Titanic stuff I never got. And the more I listen to this song and her, it's her, you know, I really enjoy her in this song. Um, it's great. And then today, I didn't know that, that um, all the same old characters are, are doing, uh, playing on, on this song and that Rundgren is doing the, the background vocals until I heard those perfect Rundgren vocals right at the end. On Celine Dion's on version? On that Celine Dion version. You, you, you know, on. I don't think I've ever listened to the Celine Dion version uh, consciously. <laughs> so coming back, so coming back to
Steinman produces that as well. Yeah. The, the thing about Steinman is that his, for all of his ridiculousness, his his reach seldom, you know, out out did his grasp. I mean, he's um, he tends to deliver on these gigantic songs. The, the th- hard thing is, is the more you listen to Steinman, the more you realize how re- how much he repeated himself after about the first. 15 years of his career and I I, kind of like that he's trying to get the right fit for the song or the right changes but you know okay so he has a musical for example in uh, 1999-2000 called Tonster Vampire which is a he actually does with Roman Polanski it's their version of the Fearless Vampire Killers but it's a musical version of it and he you know he basically rewrites uh, total Eclipse of the Heart and uh, he writes a bunch of these songs are just sort of he just sort of rewrites them yeah. but with a German lyric yeah. and they're good they're great songs but yeah. you're like how many times we, we, I mean, this pulls me out of it he's like yeah. I think people would like it they love those songs right Du wirst dich in mir erkennen, was du erträumst mit Wahrheit sein. Nicht um niemand kann uns trennen, tapp mit mir die Dunkelheit ein. Zwischen Abgrund und Schein verbrennen wir die Zweifel und vergessen die Zeit. Ich höre dich ein in meinen Schaden und trag dich weit. Du bist was Wunder, das mit der Wirklichkeit But there's there's so there's more going on. Meet eventually they they do he's doing some trying to get some musicals off the ground, uh, and um, there's weird stuff that they, they, like occasionally you'll find like he he does a he does a version of Wuthering Heights, which is it's all coming back to me now. He says it's based on Wuthering Heights. Huh. Um, yeah, I saw in like in one of the la- braver than we are or whatever that album is. Skull Skull of Your Country has. Uh, uh, turnaround bright eyes. Yep, in it. It, it, there's a lot of turnaround bright eyes. Turn shows up in a bunch of stuff, and um, you know it's it's uh, another thing that happens. By the way, is like it turns out. You know, you'd think that when Bad Out of Hell two hits so hard that like the grunge establishment would hate it. Yeah, Bad Out of Hell was one of Kurt Cobain's favorite records. What? Yeah, I mean, Steinman says. Um, he said, what was interesting was that people like Kurt Cobain would talk about Bad Out of Hell. A lot of different grunge people would talk about it. So it must have had some influence on them somewhere. Um, Kurt Cobain, one of his favorite songs was He Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth. And then you've got people like Axl Rose, whose favorite song was Two Out of Three Ain't Bad and wouldn't go on stage unless he heard it before he went on. I can believe that. Yeah, I can believe that a lot more, actually, than yeah. Kurt Cobain. But yeah. they. So eventually there's a couple of... Um, uh, meatloaf records which are okay they have a there's one that has some simon songs one that doesn't uh he works with Nikki six of mockley crew uh-huh. and i think it's it gets a little bit back to that sort of rock by numbers but yeah. then the inevitable happens and bad out of three out of hell three and uh steinman there's it's never clear what exactly happens i think steinman wants it to be called jim steinman's bad out of hell three oh they're still back on that same thing or steinman's thinking about a musical or a movie 
and doesn't really want to be involved. Meat goes ahead. He's also had a stroke. He gets Desmond Child involved, right. who's worked with Bon Jovi a ton and worked with Alice Cooper. Mm-hmm. And Aerosmith. they put together a record that's half Desmond Child, basically, and half... Um, and, and half Steinman, and there's some Diane Warren on there, and frankly, it it he do, it's his version of it's all coming back to me now, which he, do, he sees as a duet. Mm-hmm. Um, he does Bad for Good finally, which has Brian May's solo, which is a really good version of the song. The the Steinman song in the Land of the Pig, the Butcher is King from the mm-hmm. Batman musical, is a hard rocking sort of like, you know, like rafters shaker of a song. Um, there's a song called uh, the. I think there's a song called "Blind as a Bat" that Desmond Child wrote, which I think is kind of great power ballad, like mm-hmm. '80s, even though it's being recorded in 2006. I'm not afraid of a past no more. I'm not afraid, and I'm mad for good. I used to dance to the devil's beat. If I could bust in. Simon is asked later what he thinks about L three. He says it says it's it's missing the humor. Uh-huh. Doesn't have any of the humor. Right. Um, and some of the songs, it, there's not enough piano. There's more. It's more guitar-y. Um And you could tell he would have elevated it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things of like on the internet of like what would you make about out of L three? What would you have put on there? And right. there's some very good ideas I think of what that album could have been. But it's also a little too long. It's fourteen, fourteen tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little thematically, uh, you know, obtuse. Mm-hmm. Jim has worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber instead. Like, there's a the the Village Voice called Bad at Hell Three, uh, absurdist righteous majesty. <laughs> um, so I I like it. I I I I was been listening to it more and more. In fact, yeah. Uh, then comes. <laughs> Hang Cool Teddy Bear in 2010. The, the album, the, the concept album, no one thought they needed. Rob Cavallo from like, I think he'd done like Blink-182 or something like that. Or no, he'd worked on uh, with My Chemical Romance. He gets Justin Hawkins of The, the, darkness. the darkness and John Bon Jovi co-writes a couple songs. Um, and let's just say there's a song in there that you got to hear. It's, it's all building to this moment. All the, sto- the story that you told me where... You got this, this, I, I think this is a, you can listen to it on YouTube. Maybe you can buy it, but it's definitely not on Spotify. So you got the CD and you had the CD in your car and your boys, uh, all three, I'm assuming in the car with you, you're going through the tracks for the first time. And this song, uh, comes on, what is it called? California is not big enough. Yeah. California isn't big enough. Should I play the, the, the part of yeah. it? Okay. So here we go. Hey, there. There's a little surprise I'm so hot And you're the reason why You're so cute I wanna smash your face I know 
Oddly enough, his voice sounds in it sounds rehabilitated on this it record. It sounds fantastic. It's like if it was all building to this, yes, it but was this worth one it. chorus. I mean, like I singing it the rest of the day is like I can hardly fit. My I know you just gotta watch where you're. You're. It's so hooky and so <laughs> it's hilarious. By the guy from the darkness. Yeah. And it's so hummable that you know it's you could find yourself incredible. you know singing it in the grocery stores. You're looking for broccoli, and but it's also the whole like, record's oh. based around some short story. I mean, it's there's a little bit of sort of metal by numbers here, but it's all you know Steve Vai's on there from right. you know who'd worked with David Lee Roth. Uh, I think uh, you know somewhere along the line, there's like uh, you know John Bon Jovi shows up again. It's uh, it has Axel vibes to me. It definitely that's that song. A then little he's, bit. he's got a album called hell in a handbasket that comes out i don't know if i don't i never even heard it to be I, honest i didn't you. listen to that um i listened to a couple of the of the the last albums and they were okay well the, the one that the final one is called braver than we are which yeah. is the kind of their understanding of sort of their their it's, it's all jim steinman songs he's basically dying as they write it and meat has lost his voice like he's mm. he's also had a stroke and uh, but there's a song on there. Uh, people think, oh, they shouldn't have released it. He sounds like an old man. This is not how he wants to be remembered. But to me, there's a song on there called um, Braver Than We Are, which had shown up in the vampire musical. Mm. But I think it's um, I think it's really moving. It's a 10-minute song. And he oh, gets wow. Ellen Foley and I think Patty Russo from like his back in the day, um, or Carla DeVito. And they going all the way... Um, Braver than we are. Sorry, it's just called "Going All the Way." It's just the start, and it's uh, ten, eleven and a half minutes long. And it's a, I think it's the last great Jim Steinman song. Cool. There are times I gotta run, times I gotta hide, things I've left undone, things I've cast aside, so many things to try, so many things denied. If I ever tell you the truth, I'd swear. It's like uh, one of the best quotes I ever heard about us is if we ever figured out what we were doing, we'd be in big trouble. So I don't think we sit around and try to figure it out. It just sort of comes along and fits together like a puzzle. And we always hope that we can find the last piece to the puzzle. And uh, the song that Carl and I are going to do on the next record will be the, is, the, is the, the piece that finished the puzzle, and which turned everything around from being like seeming so dark into very 
hey, you know, that kind of thing. And it can be dark. Like, it's a very emotional thing. So Steinman's emotional. Everybody that uh, works with us is like some of the most sensitive people you ever meet in your entire life, you know, and uh, it has to be. One thing we didn't talk about, uh, which is what happens, all, at least from when we were talking about Rhodey on, is the number of acting roles that Meatloaf had, whether they were TV or movies. Fight Club. Fight Club. I mean, he's... I am Robert Paulson. My name is Bob. Bob. You... Bob had been a champion bodybuilder. You know that chest expansion program you see on late night TV? That was his idea. I was a juicer. You know, using steroids. Diabinol and... Wisterol. Oh, they use that on racehorses, for Christ's sakes. And now I'm bankrupt. I'm divorced. My two grown kids... I wouldn't even return my phone calls. Strangers with this kind of honesty make me go a big rubbery one. Go ahead, Cornelius. You can cry. He's fantastic in in that movie. But then there's there's other there's like things that live large in my memory that that I wouldn't spice call World? Them. when he's the he's the bus driver of spice world <laughs> spice world it's like uh blood rain uh the ua bowl uh movie um he's in a horrible looking movie called to catch a yeti where uh it's basically et but it's a yeti man-eating monsters of proud the himalayas they don't exist but a yeti a yeti exists and that, right there, that's a Yeti. He's in Out of Bounds with Anthony Michael Hall, which is getting sort of a cult status now as, really? a, as a fun 80s movie to watch. The Squeeze, which I always love with Michael Keaton and Radon Chong. Leap of Faith with Steve Martin. I always love that movie. Uh, Fight Club, like you said. And Black Dog with Patrick Swayze and Randy Travis. And oh Meatloaf is the bad guy. Um, just all these juicy, fun roles he did throughout all this. It just, I think it, it definitely adds to, uh, you know, a, a pretty fun career that he had. And then, of course, <laughs> there's the downer that he was on Celebrity Apprentice and said that uh, he, he would vote for Donald Trump if he, if he ran and that he would he, work for Donald oh, Trump. Remember? But he also, doesn't he get like fired like he gets some oh, huge yeah. flip, flip out yeah. like he gets a oh yeah yeah he, a big send-off yeah he does not come off looking well in uh, the celebrity apprentice no. i haven't seen it i just sent the clip where he's like i would vote for you for president <laughs> like and you want to hear like the, the music thing like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> the, um so i think he's uh, a delightful guy um he seems like a sweetheart and he's lived this about 15 different lives and you have Stein, for sure. Steinman this guy, who's I, contributed a, he contributed basically a lot to the American soundtrack. People use music the most personally of every art form. I mean, I think people define their lives, style their lives, shape their lives more to music than they possibly could to film, television or anything. It's less spectator art than one that's in the pure sense is communal. You know, you do ingest it and it does become... You take it intravenously. I think music is an intravenous art. <laughs> yeah. So where would you go? What do you have a top five or? Um, I have a, a, a non-meat and a meat. Okay. I have a veggie and a and a meat menu. 
Um, <laughs> my non-meat favorites are Happy Ending, the Yvonne Elliman uh, Steinman song, um, Making Love Out of Nothing at All, Faster Than the Speed of Night, um, the Bonnie Tyler song, uh, Loving You is a Dirty Job, the Bonnie Tyler uh, and Todd Rundgren song, and um, Rock Me Tonight, Billy Squire. Mm. Those are those are my non-meat songs that that we. I'll give you about. some non-meat songs that I like. Do it. I like Rebel Without a Clue, the Don, Bonnie Tyler one. I like Tonight is what it means to be young. Yeah. Uh, I like Read 'Em and Weep, the um, Barry Manilow version. And I would probably put the Making Love Out of Nothing at All, the Bonnie Tyler oh. version. Oh, right. The yeah. 90s version. And then um, yeah, I think it, the um, Left in the Dark uh, version that, um, that uh, not, the, not the Barbara Streisand version, the actual Steinman version. I like that one the best of his. Yeah. So, so what would you say for Meatloaf? Um... I put what you see is what you get on my my list. Uh, the the Motown song. The Motown yep. song. I put uh, writing. I uh, um, I love you so I told you a lie, which is the Ted Nugent okay. uh, Meatloaf song just for fun. Um, If you uh, if you really want me to, that song I played off of Midnight at the uh, the Lost and Found, and uh, I got I got to do Special Girl. Good Lord! I know, I know. You just went with no Steinman song. <laughs> I told it's you, like a, I told you that's what I like. I think I think this whole podcast sure is a farce at this point. That's four. That was four. Okay, here's here's your Steinman. Nowhere fast off Dead Ringer. Okay, uh, uh, off of Bad Attitude. Sorry. Um, okay, for me, Meatloaf, it's uh, Crying Out Loud, which I think is a, a, a great song. <laughs> it can't really be beat. I love I'll Kill You If You Don't Come Back. Um, I would go with Surf's Up off of A Bad Attitude. Uh, I would do Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through off of uh, Bad Out of Hell 2. And then I just, because... Well, you know, I'll do Hot Patootie, Bless My Soul off of uh, <laughs> off of uh, Rocky Horror. I wanted to say California isn't big enough, but I just don't know if I can look myself in the eye. But Oh, I assumed you would take it. Otherwise, uh, no. it would have been on my list. Okay. Well, well then, then we share it. We okay, share it. We share it. It's so good. It's so good. Um, I will say that what I think is going to happen after this for me is that I'm going to start listening to Bad for Good a lot more than I did. It's really slowly sort of gotten its hooks in me. Um, and I'm really interested to k- kind of live in that album for a while. I also, in the past couple of days, have have really come back to um, I'd Do Anything for Love. Like, I, it's it's a damn good song. Yeah. I mean, it just is. Dynamics. He loves dynamics. Should we send it out on that? Yeah, let's do that. All Hey, it's Lex. 
Thanks for listening. This song is 12 minutes long, so we thought we'd steal a couple minutes of it to give a shout-out to the Gordy and Quincy-level subscribers who, along with everyone else who's with us over at Patreon, has made it possible for us to turn these big episodes around a little bit faster and start putting out new kinds of episodes. So, here are our Gordies and our Quincy's, Alex Orthwain, Zach Bruckmiller, Josh Corrigan, John Glover, Steve Carey, Blake Collier, and Michael Austin. Thank you all. The last couple of months on Patreon have been fun, and it's been a cool way to expand what we do with the Well of Sound. Speaking of which, Patreon subscribers can look forward to a remastered version of our Mop the Hoople episode very soon. That was the first episode, um, and it came out in 2018, and we've learned a lot along the way. Thank you for sticking with us, spreading the word, subscribing, liking, reviewing, all the stuff. Keep on rocking. We'll see you next time. Forgive myself if we don't
No, I won't do that. 